the ever-present pursuit of entertainment, education, and some adjective to be named later. The Homestar Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. Trek West 5 is brought to you in part by RocketWebDesign.com, custom web design at template website prices. Designs by Dee.blogspot.com, your online home for all your digital scrapbooking needs. Need a home along the Wasatch Front? Contact Lisa DeBagere with Kirkham & Friends Real Estate. No one will work harder for your home. And thehomestarmy.com, blogging to the world since 2004. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Good evening and welcome to podcast 122. I am Peter. And I am Joey. And uh, welcome back everyone. Uh, and he is the intern. I was going to oh. get there. Man. I, I wanted to cut you off at the past because you were going to give him an opportunity to wave with the microphone. I'm, I was trying to kill it before we got there. No. Look, now I'm not even going to introduce him. Great. Let's move on. <laughs> Anything else up in this week? <laughs> no. We have the intern, Aaron. Welcome uh, to the podcast. It's been a very long time. It has. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I, I'm assuming that you're coming back. In the hour of greatest need, <laughs> as, as we well, now, our need is greater. <laughs> as uh, as we now are uh, sullying ourselves in the filth of season uh, five, season five um, we're hoping that maybe you can bring an air of greatness to help uh, <laughs> make this shine just a little brighter. No expectations, though. <laughs> Uh, Joey, how was your week? It was crap. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, my wife's not doing well. She's having some health issues, so it's been pretty tough. But, yeah? Eh, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, well, I what I chose to do was uh, interrupt your life by bringing down my yeah? computer, which was <laughs> grossly infected by some horrible, horrible STD <laughs> that I picked up, you know, hanging out I on uh, you, Wilson quit. Way. <laughs> Spongebob, I held that joke back for you <laughs> That could have gone to a dark place right there <laughs> uh, Yeah, my, my computer picked up a virus from a customer of mine, unfortunately Who had a website that was hacked Anyway, long story short, I'm going to lose the thing But Joey was kind enough to at least get all of uh, my program files off of it and uh, Your data, none of your program files can I get some of the program files? No. no? The program files are the infection. Oh. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, but you got to be careful because the, some of the data could still have a runny nose. Could be. We, we, we'll keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, Maybe if you injected it with penicillin. <laughs> that does seem to solve everything. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I had a really, like, I felt like I got kicked in the gut several times earlier this week because as as monday happened i'm like oh my gosh what's going on here what's going on and the computer was useless at that point and that's my work computer yeah it's my heart and soul at work oh well we're i guess gonna get me another new laptop and i'll move on well a laptop new to me laptop <laughs> a gently used laptop um Okay, uh, do we have any announcements? I don't think so. No? We good. should probably announce now we may not have a podcast next week. 
uh, as due to some of the, the personal stuff going on with uh, with you. Um, so we're sorry, but uh, eh, we definitely will be have back. on the weekend of Thanksgiving. So that may be a two week break. Holy cow! Wow. I expect all of our listeners to deeply contemplate the next four episodes <laughs> and send us in the most awesome comments ever. Or not. Just maybe enjoy yourselves. <laughs> Chill out. Relax. Um, okay. Uh, since we don't have any announcements, Aaron, any announcements from you? Okay. Um, Facebook find of the week? Facebook find of the week. Okay. Who wins? Carbonite Man. Okay, for the you're, uh, you're Mario gonna... beads. <laughs> that was cute. It was definitely really neat. Um, uh, I had my eye on something else, but yeah, uh, yeah. You like the uh, what number of person was I born in? Yeah. If the math had been accurate, I would have gladly given it to that. <laughs> <laughs> Prove the math wasn't accurate, Joey. <laughs> well, the simple fact that all they asked me for was my birthday. I have no idea what time zone, city, or anything else I was born in. <laughs> There's no way they could accurately state the it's level of precision. They stated as though I were. It said you are the, and it gave me a number. <laughs> it didn't say you are approximately. It didn't say no, it, you are around the. It assigned you a number <laughs> instead of a name. <laughs> Uh, oh well, that. Uh, but the the Mario thing was still really the amount cool. of work that that had to bend to move those beads around like that. My question is, do you think that like maybe they had it like in a platform itself? So as Mario moved, they didn't have to move each and every individual bead to shoot. I, the stop I'm, sure, thing. I'm like, sure they it probably was like, had some. Yeah. Okay. But still, I mean, they they were moving it around the baseboard of the room. Yeah, I, I like how they altered the camera to, to tweak around. That was pretty cool as yeah. well. I thought it was neat. Uh, it, it made me harken back to my days of, you know, sitting in uh, geography class as a, a, a sixth grader and, you know, doodling on every single page to create my own little flip animation <laughs> thing. You never did that? Never have done that. Wow, seriously? So basically, you, you write it down here I, in the I, corner. I got, I got the principle. And then there, yeah. Yeah, you play a little story. You know, some guy's running along and he jumps across <laughs> some big chasm. It's fun. Do you still have any of those? I'd like Go. to see one. <laughs> well, we, could, we could film one and put it on the website. Maybe it can become a Facebook Fight of the Week award. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It could. It, it really could, couldn't it? <laughs> Maybe that. Well, we'll think about that. Oh, by the way, I I I took something that I'm thinking we might be able to use. Okay. So as another we're, award, we're, we're we're getting where we need another one. Yeah. So. I'll have to get uh, my. I think friend. this is Carbonite Man's fourth, so I think we're okay for this week. Okay. Good. Um. All right. Well, congratulations, Carbonite Man. Um. We uh. Let's move on to Brainy Smurf. Okay. Brainy Smurf. He says, "Hello, nation." We are all praying for the growing list of innocent victims as Pennsylvania endured one of the darkest moments in our history, in our society's history this week. If JMS has taught us anything, it is to stand up for what is right, no matter the consequences. Inaction in this current case resulted in suffering. There are no words. There can be only prayers. There is always something to learn. And, of course, he is referring to some of the stuff that has got, happened with um, the uh, Penn State uh, and the allegations that came out 
uh, about um, child abuse, uh, sexual molestation of many children over several years uh, from a, uh, a former coach at, uh, at the college. So uh, really, really terrible uh, what's happened there that week. So um, uh, I guess we'll, you know, from that happy topic, move into <laughs> something else. Uh, so, and now for Brainy's Nook of Darkness. <laughs> that didn't feel right to do that, did it? It didn't really feel right. Um, uh, he says, A contemplative compliment to the corner that Joey shoves us into each week. World War Z by Max Brooks. As Joey observed last week, the film adaptation of World War Z was written by JMS. The movie will be out in December of 2012, uh, and we'll start... It'll be out when? <laughs> December of 2012? Okay. You said 2012. <laughs> <laughs> well, could be out then as well. <laughs> uh, we'll star Brad Pitt and Matthew Fox. Oh, I didn't know It's going to be awesome. That was Brandy Smurf, not me. Last week, the concept of inaction was upheld by the heroes of Foundation as a noble alternative to violence. Salvor Hardin's quote, Never let your morals prevent you from doing what is right, close quote, was to me always meant as a light-hearted quip. In World War Z, inaction fueled the fire that paved the way for the world's third great war. How was a government supposed to inform its citizens to beware of uh, walking corpses? Denial and cover-ups were the initial attempts to quell the panic, which was globally out of control. Quote, it was bedlam, exactly what you thought the end of the world was supposed to look like. Close quote. Some say the panic killed more people than the zombies. Mob mentality ruled the streets. And how does mob mentality rate to a zombie apocalypse? Everyone knows that zombies are a classic manifestation of humans' desire to consume to the point of gluttony. But social diffusion is also very contagious. Max Brooks writes in World War Z, quote, The panic was more infectious than the Z virus, close quote. Many of the personal accounts from the survivors of the zombie war describe the war's preliminary event, referred to as the Great Panic. Brooks was inspired by actual events of Hurricane Katrina, evidence enough of what can go wrong when a government fails to protect its people. Denial and redistribution of blame are always reactions to tragedy, and they are also the initial actions of a regime bent on domination. A salient overtone in World War Z incorporates the fact that the world's governments suffered this weakness as the victims, not the aggressors, of the unstoppable virus spreading around the world. Every casualty of war resulted in the victim inevitably joining the ranks of the enemy. The tables were turned. The art of war no longer applied. Every previous army on earth had been required to be bred, fed, and led. The soldiers of this war, in military tradition, refer to the walking dead as Zack. And Zack rewrote the, world, the rules of combat. An enemy who was biologically incapable of fear, required no leadership, 
also had no need for strategy or cooperation, was as scary as it was unprecedented. So, as the world's army could only hold off Zack to an initial stalemate, the media was crawling for any shred of reactionary blame. The early stages of denial fueled the panic as fingers were pointed, and all the while the undead army's numbers steadily grew. Humans could only blame other humans for the outbreak, as they were being eaten alive by their transformed brethren. Referring to the initial shock, Brooks notes that, quote, most people cannot realize that something has happened until it already has, close quote. Referring as much to World War II as he was to World War Z. The book conveys personal accounts from survivors of the Z War that nearly wiped out humankind. The narrative device is a journalistic interview pattern with characters from all around the world, from the brass to the grunts, from the diplomats to the civilians, the novel is a rich tapestry woven through the tales of horror and hope. My favorite story is of an old blind Japanese hermit. He was outcast by his society because of the caste he was born into. He eventually finds his place in the world as he utilizes his sharpened senses to combat Zack with a single trusty spade. In the account, Brooks also provides a beautiful description of the kami, which, by the way, he, he gave me a pronunciation there. He wrote K plus A minus me. <laughs> so, <laughs> should I not be pronouncing the me part of that? <laughs> well, you need to delete it from the K and the A. Huh. Anyway, I'm just going to go with Kami. If I'm I, wrong, I, I'm, I'm okay sorry. Uh, the Kami, who are the gods of Japan's indigenous religion, Shintoism. The Kami are more than entities. They are every facet of existence. The Kami are actually much like the flashlight in Lanier's illustration, the soul as a non-localized phenomenon. This is why Shinto is so closely connected with nature. Nature is worshipped and revered as divine. A Shinto shrine is mostly just a red gate. The gate is a spiritual doorway, not meant to obstruct the view of the nature scene beyond it. For instance, one might see a red gate in front of Mount Fuji, so one would pray to the kami of the mountain. The same could apply to the sky or a waterfall, anything beautiful. The old blind hermit protects his kami by killing zombies and then ritualistically burying them, separating and burning the infectious craniums to avoid further tainting the earth. He said, quote, it just seemed proper, close quote. I love that quote. He was defending his forest from the threat of Zack, a former societal outcast and pariah the blind hermit discovers purpose in his broken life. As he fights for his kami, his spirit melts into the world. He is one with the universe. His purpose and his respect for the kami, in turn, increase his resolve, as it concurrently uh, magnifies his sense of reverence for his forest. 
World War Z is about what humans are capable of, the valiant and the ugly. Like every war, it starts off atrociously, but unlike any war in my lifetime, World War Z ends with a clear, resolute sense of hope. We are capable of combating evil, however it may manifest. The old blind hermit had the answer to the horror he lived through, vigilance. As Picard awesomely said in the drumhead, quote, We think we've come so far. Torture of heretics, burning of witches. It's all ancient history. Then, before you can blink an eye, suddenly it threatens to start all over again. But they, or someone like them, will always be with us, waiting for the right climate in which to flourish, spreading fear in the name of righteousness. Vigilance, Mr. Worf, that is the price we have to continually pay. Close quote. This week, Jerry Taylor's word uh, words have never rung truer. Okay, that was good. I was very close to trying to throw in a Picard accent in there. <laughs> very, very you close. You should have gone for it. Uh, yeah. If we were to do this a hundred more times, I might do it. <laughs> Well, that can be arranged. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not, because, man, that's a really, really long thing he wrote. But that's really good. And I like the, the part that he brings out there at the end, you know, uh, with the old blind hermit. This person who, you know, just because he was shunned by society doesn't mean he should just throw in the towel and yeah. give up. He fights through all of that stuff. And uh, what was the quote in there? Um, oh, it just shoot. seemed proper? Yes, it just seemed proper. Um, that, that's yeah. I that's good. I like that. I, I like a lot of the points he made there. There's just one issue I want to take with what he said. Ooh, um, Joey takes umbrage. His assertion right at the beginning was, "Go on, take your." Everyone time. knows that zombies are a classic manifestation of humans' desire to consume to the point of gluttony. Hmm. So. Zombies have come to represent a lot of things over the years. They can. Um, they they started off as uh, a, a fear of the unknown and the um, the cultural integration that was going on between blacks and whites in the in the 1900s. Right. That's where zombies come from. It's this Haitian voodoo ritual thing. That's where the word zombie got injected into our our culture. Or that's what the liberal media wants us to believe. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> um, but the you know the the real the real stranglehold that zombies have over modern media mostly comes from John Romero's. Was it John Romero? George Romero? One of the Romeros, <laughs> <laughs> Mister Romero. Uh, um, uh, actually, here Mrs. I even Romero. Ms. Jo is George Romero. A. Romero. So it comes out of George Romero's. Um, Night of the Living Dead. That's that's where really the current popular conception of the zombie comes from. Uh -huh. And Romero is quoted as saying, I see the zombie as representing change, global change of any kind. Not necessarily consumerism. Now, the, the thing that really frightens us about zombies is that they're people, right? They're, they're us. They're all the really weird and bad parts of us. They become a template for us to lay any kind of evil or frightening thing over. And so there have been lots of takes on the zombie. And, and each take is a little bit different. 
consumerism is absolutely one of those takes that has been done. But I wouldn't say that the zombie as a whole, I'd say the zombie is a template, not necessarily a concrete representation of any one fear. If you want to hear more about this, the, the, the place where I actually got that view from and where I you know, started to spin off my own thoughts on the process was, uh, I'll have Pete link to it, it was video series, a flash video series done on the, on the internet called Extra Credits. Uh, you can find them, they're currently being hosted by Penny Arcade, but it is, it, it is a bunch of people who are professionals in the video game industry, and they talk about, they, they just take a topic out of video games, current video games, and, and they just kind of expound upon it. So they did an entry right back around Halloween about zombies, and, and we'll link to that so you guys can hear more what they have to say about that. Okay. Um, all right, so why don't we go into Joey's Culture Corner, or was that it? George nope. Romero's nope, uh, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, I, I myself am not a fan of zombies. <laughs> I don't care for the supernatural in, in, in almost any regard. Uh, Joey's Culture Corner is The Host by Stephanie Meyer. Now, I almost did not read this book. I came very, very close to reading. By the way, for, for those book. people who don't know, she is the one who brought us... Twilight. Twilight. Which is why I almost didn't read it, because I thought, why would I ever want to read anything by that woman? <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually how she's referred to in my house, by me. I tell my wife, oh, you're going to go see that movie by that woman, aren't you? <laughs> um, I have no respect whatsoever for the concept of Twilight. And as a result, I almost did not pick this book up. But I had enough people whose opinions I thought were at least semi-trustworthy tell me, hey, you know, you ought to give it a try, go read it. This is a science fiction novel. Um, it's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, okay? But the whole story is told from the, in, in the first person from the perspective of one of the body-snatching aliens. Okay. So we, we are hearing the thoughts of a alien who is living inside a human being and is, she is captured by humans. A uh, um, What's the term I'm looking for? A, a, a cell of humans who are free and is forced to live with them for a period of time. And over time she actually starts to understand a little bit about the difference between her race and the humans that they are inhabiting and she comes to respect everybody a little bit more it, it's it, it was actually a really entertaining read i enjoyed it so we by the end we're we're all friends and um no no, no? okay it, it very much ends with the the humans you know fighting back and we're gonna go out and we're gonna try and destroy these aliens it, it's not necessarily a a happy-go-lucky, everyone, you know, kumbayas together <laughs> ending. But the alien, her process of coming to understand humanity, I think it is interesting to, to read it simply for the process of, it's, it's someone who kind of managed to step outside of humanity for a minute and look at us through completely alien eyes and the things that we do and, and what we are and how we behave and stuff like that. Uh, it... it it gave me an opportunity to look at society and some pieces of society that have never made a whole lot of sense to me actually kind of started to make sense when I could, when I could step outside of 
you know, living those instances of just weirdness, like bullying and things like that, and and see them from a completely unemotional, disconnected view of someone who's looking at us almost like bugs in a jar. Uh huh. Um, it, it gave me some insight into our nature, and for that, I really enjoyed it. Plus, it was just fun science fiction. Okay. Thumb up. Thumb up. Okay, so you heard it here. Joey loves Stephanie Meyer and everything Do not that she writes. Twilight. <laughs> Go out and watch the movies and buy all the books now. <laughs> anyway, okay, I guess that's all. Um, let's see here. Do we have to go into episodes now? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> well, let me just let me start. Well, let me do my thing. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, go go ahead and, and read your, your thing. It wouldn't be a Trek Quest 5 without reading from Straczynski's book. <laughs> There's something about losing one's notes, having one's lead cast members take a powder, and having to start over from scratch that's liberating, that's freeing, that's... Okay, that's a lie. After the loss of Ivanova, my fifth season notes, and the consequent loss of momentum, I was struggling to get that sense of forward motion going again. It was incredibly hard, especially given the brutal deadlines that had to be met in order to meet the TV scheduled air dates on TNT. If you check the dates on the scripts in this volume, the first one is dated August 3rd of 1997, and the last one is dated October 20th, 1997. Seven scripts written from concept to finished draft in 11 weeks, a regimen I had to meet and maintain for pretty much all of the fifth year, in addition to continuing to produce the series. And because we'd begun shooting our episodes in six days instead of seven, everything about the production of the show had accelerated, becoming even more stressful. <laughs> Consequently, in the pages that follow, while there's a lot of good stuff, nice moments, and nifty little character turns, there's also a lot of other stuff there that, if I had to do it over again, would not be present. Put more bluntly, I stumbled. I don't think there's anyone who wouldn't have stumbled given the circumstances, but that excuses nothing. I should have fought harder to get up to speed more quickly. Because exhaustion is temporary, but Babylon 5 is forever. <laughs> Jeez. That was corny. That <laughs> was really corny. Alright, uh, why don't we... Uh, we'll go no, ahead and... Because it, it involves time travel, and so therefore there's like a continuous loop of... You can just reach that point and go back in time. I already had a headache to begin with. Uh, All right, let's. uh, We are going to be covering episodes five through eight of the West Wing. No, of Babylon Five, (laughs) season five, and uh, we'll start off with episode five, learning curve. Rangers visit Babylon Five and stop a new underworld boss from rising to power. Now. Joey, you mentioned that we didn't have to watch this episode. Did. did you watch it anyway? <laughs> I did. I did. And I, I, have... I was looking for the word for word for the apology here. <laughs> I, uh, I I took very little notes, and even those are nothing of substantive value. That's uh, mm. yeah. I can't find the exact wording of his apology, but I did put it on the Facebook page. It was something along the lines of. I should have to go to every single Babylon 5 fan's house in person and apologize that this episode even exists. Yeah. I think he's also responsible for TKO. I don't care what you say. <laughs> he is still responsible for that. Uh, okay, so we have people at the beginning sitting and meditating. 
and um, they're rangers, and we notice there's a Pokmara ranger at the back there sleeping. Yeah. Um, interesting. Um, what do you think about the idea of opening up the ranger core to more than just humans and Minbari? I think it's a great idea. It, it, you do? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, clearly Delenn thought that as well. What because, about you? Uh, no. Why? Because I don't fully trust what all of the other aliens out there are going to do with this you know, great training that we're going to give them. Now, granted, there is supposed to be some sort of weeding out process, but I'm... I believe that people can lie and can, you know, get through that, you know, get through the training. So it's because it. you don't have any confidence that they can filter out the bad eggs. I just don't know enough about the other alien races to say, I oh, see. yeah, I totally trust, um, you know, this race. I don't trust any race as a race, but I trust individuals sometimes. Okay. And, and, and that's why I think it's okay. Because they're not saying, oh, yeah. Any Pakmara who wants to be a ranger, come on down and we'll give you the training. <laughs> they are doing things to make sure that they're getting solid candidates here. Now, Delenn does something interesting where she says, Yeah, you know what? The Pakmara can be incredibly useful. Everyone ignores them universally. Yes. We can use them as our you know, information gathering people and as our, you know, our, our shippers of information along. I guess that's okay, but it seems like we're just belittling the Pac-Mara into realizing they have no use, intrinsic value whatsoever. I, I think that's actually a uh, a little bit of social commentary kind of thing. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but hmm. it is something that the north north end of the United States did in the Civil War to the south of the United States. They used black people that way because you know they were treated as cattle as uh, you know, something to be ignored or as furniture, and so they would have conversations right in front of them about military strategy and things like that. And so, you know, we know that the people in the north did use black people as spies in a, in a similar manner. I think that that's probably where that came from. Yeah, it, it just—it's a little weird for Delenn to say it. We're going to comfortable with that. It's just a little weird. Okay. That's all. Um. Uh, okay, so this one guy, this one uh, ranger gets beat up by this evil British guy <laughs> uh, who wants to start up his own biker gang. Because that worked out so well for the other guy. <laughs> I don't know why anyone would well, ever start so, up a biker gang <laughs> knowing how poorly they turn out. Here's the interesting thing. I don't know if you caught this. Something has happened to Negrath. Negrath is gone. Yeah. That's the praying mantis thing that we haven't yeah, seen since season one. <laughs> yeah. I, I just thought that was interesting. It was just an aside. Hmm. Something happened to Negrath. We don't know what. Yeah. Maybe he had the him. quarters next to Kosh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so the rangers, they're like, they say this thing and it's like, oh, we're going to come after you with terror. The application of terror, yeah. Silly. But, Okay. <laughs> My question is, should the rangers be allowed to do what Delenn wants here inside Babylon 5? Should they be? Yes. Or are they? No. Should they be allowed to? I, my answer, 
just while you're thinking about that, I, I don't think they should be. Delenn, in my opinion, comes through here and bullies her way through because she's, you know, she's the wife of the president. Well, no. And in the, ones in, in the one in charge of the rangers. By the letter of the law, they, what they're doing here is right. The rangers have, according to the treaty that was signed, the rangers have jurisdiction here. Do they? Oh, yes. According to the treaty that Earth signed... I don't recall that, but then again, I never read the treaty. They, they tell us inside the episode. That's when Delenn goes to Lockley, and she, you know, Del- Lockley's response to that is, oh, you're going to pull rank on me? What Delenn is saying is, look, you guys signed a treaty. The treaty says, if you want the Rangers' help, the Rangers have to be able to come in and take jurisdiction over your local police at any point for any reason. Hmm. That is an agreement that you made. We are now calling your your, you know, calling you to uh, calling on you to agree to to live up to your agreement. Okay, well, uh, whether or not that contract that uh, that treaty should have been signed under those circumstances, I think is arguable. But according to what we have, the information we have from the episode, they absolutely are within their right to do this. Yeah, I I, I still just don't I don't agree with it. So. The rangers go down there and they turn out the lights. And they're secretly running all over the place and beating up the bad guys. To the point where they finally, you know, corral this one evil British British biker guy. And they give him one of the the sticks. Minbari fighting. Minbari fighting something or other. Pike. Pike. And his comment is this. Quote, I'm not trained to use one of these things. Close quote. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Exactly what training do you need to swing a stick? (laughs) Well, Well, against somebody who's trained to do it a lot. (laughs) I just thought it absolutely silly that this is his... You know, we're supposed to believe this. Like, oh, oh, I'm not trained to use this. This isn't fair to me. I just was infuriated hey, if, at that. If you came at me and you had one of your kendo swords and you handed me a kendo <laughs> sword and said, defend yourself, my response would be, Pete, I'm not trained in how to do this. Please stop. <laughs> okay, but if that's the case, would you then throw the thing away from you? No, I would not. Yeah. I would run. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I would trip you with my kendo stick and then beat you. Um... And I guess the last thing I wrote is don't go to bed angry. Seemed weird, but I guess we'll get the answer to this in the next episode. Uh, there, there's a couple other things that... Really? That, really? Just one or two things, if you'll better bear with me. I, I, I'm just... I'm surprised that there could be more in here. If the Pakmara cannot learn to be what we think they should be, then perhaps we should learn to use them for what they are. What do you think about applying that principle in general to people? If Aaron can't be what I think he should be, maybe I should just learn to use him for what he is. Haven't you already done that? Well, I know what I think about that principle. (laughs) And I think you just revealed what I think about that principle. (laughs) I'm asking what you think about that principle. No, not... I don't fully agree to that. Um as a global statement. I, I think amongst 
other races or in the you know in the universe yes that might be an okay thing to do but amongst everybody who is human no i i don't agree with that it's the idea that oh i just let them you know sink to whatever level they're at and i can't you know i just give up and say you can't possibly be anything better and i i have a problem with that because i think that people can be better and we ought to push them in subtle ways sometimes and in grandiose ways other times to get them to realize you can be better you can achieve a higher level of, of whatever I, I like what are you doing uh, <laughs> I was really appreciating the the gestures of, of as you were getting people built up <laughs> well <laughs> it looked like a little prayer you were saying <laughs> It helped get the concept across because my did. words I knew were not possibly no. going to sink into your brain. No, I, I, I got what you said. I, 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 I remember when he was like this. Give me some time. I'll wear you down. <laughs> <laughs> Much like the Pac you will eventually go, screw it. We'll just use them as, you know, slave labor. Throw my hands up. I'm done. Fine. Just vegetate in that corner. <laughs> I, I We interpret that phrase, I guess, a little bit differently. Here's... Here's how I apply that. People have strengths and they have weaknesses. Don't waste your time trying to fix your weaknesses. Focus on your strengths and build on them. Oh. And just marginalize the weaknesses. I, I cannot agree with that. Okay. Cannot so, agree so with that. So an example of myself... I am not a leader of men. <laughs> what are you means. talking about? Where you've helped lead this podcast into something wondrous. That's why that's why you're here <laughs> week after week. That's why I can't do the podcast without you. We know why you can't do it without me for the technical reasons. I can't do it without you because you're the leader. As much as I joke otherwise. I, I'm serious though. There, there's... There is some part of my of my character or of my brain or my emotional makeup. I don't know where the deficiency is, but I don't know how to inspire people. I don't know how to make them want to follow my example. I can, you know, I have been in charge of a company of 17 employees and I have been the right-hand man to a guy who's in charge of a company. And I can tell you I've always been more successful as the right-hand man. And I can make him more successful than I ever can by trying to lead myself. I, I, so I, instead of spending my life working on trying to become a leader and studying the great leaders and, and you know agonizing over this, I've just said, okay, you know what? That is just something I'm never going to be. I'm going to quit trying to be it, it and I'm going to focus on what I can do. It, it's that defeatist attitude of, I can never be this. That is the thing that I have a problem with. Not the fact that, okay, I, I probably am not going to be, you know, this great leader or, you know, lead all of Utah in, you know, rising up against the horrible UN. Um, you know, it, I'm not articulating this well. To just give up and say, yeah, that can't ever be me because that's that's not who I am is different from saying, look, that's not one of my strengths and I'm not going to continuously try to become that person. I should still try to better myself in other ways, but to just say, yeah, that I can never do that 
I think is a lie. That's interesting. So I, the way I look at it is there's a finite amount of energy I can apply. You may not become great at it. You may not become a Mike to you know throw a name out there. Yes. But you can become somebody better than what you are right now by applying your God-given abilities, which are plenty, to that task. And you would surprise yourself how far you could come. I have, though. I feel like I'm Tony Robbins here. <laughs> I, 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 that, that, that's, that's the thing. is I looked at my life and I said, okay, there's only so much I can do in life. All right? There's, okay. a, there's a finite amount of time, yep. finite amount of hours that I can actually stay awake. Agree. As much as it frustrates me. <laughs> Without the use of methamphetamines. <laughs> and and I, can, I, can, I can only do so much. Uh-huh. So instead of working on something that I will never be great at, why not focus on something that I can be great at and just not worry about the thing that I know I'll never be great at? I, I don't disagree with that point. The point I disagree with is I can never be that. It's the definitive statement of that I, that can never be me, and I I just throw that out the window completely. I, I think that's that's a lie. You can be that. You may not become super great at it or the best person ever, but you can become better at it. I I okay I would agree with that statement. I could become better at it, but I would never excel at it. Yes. So I'm not going to waste any time it, on it. In, in our religious vernacular, it, it, for me, it, it's tied very heavily to uh, one of our scriptures which talks about um, God gives men weaknesses that they may be humble so that they can then return to God and say, make this a strength to me. I come to you in my weakness, in my humility, and ask for your assistance. And he will then make your weaknesses your strength. And so that's, that's for me why I come back so hard at you and say, to say you can never be that, you know, dynamic, charismatic leader, um, which, yeah, maybe we don't want you as the dynamic, charismatic leader. <laughs> Leaving that aside, you maybe still... that's a good you, thing for you. <laughs> you. You still could get there, I think. Okay. That's, that's where one of my core beliefs, you could. I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I'm, and I'm aware that that is a principle that we, te- we teach in our religion. But I've had trouble applying it in sure. practice. I, so. I, I don't disagree that the, the application becomes incredibly difficult. As case in point, many times I've said, I do not get programming. And you have told me on occasion, yeah, dude, you could get this. Yeah. And I, on other on occasions, just say, nah, screw this. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I, I cannot get this. And you have always said, no, dude, you could totally get this. Yeah. So. Okay. Good, good conversation, I guess. I guess there was something worthwhile discussing here. There's one other one here. We create the meaning in our lives. It does not exist independently. Being, insert title here, means doing each right thing because it is the right thing. The scale doesn't matter. The where, the when, the how, mm-hmm. or in what cause, none of those things matter. Yeah. I think that's fundamental. One of the things we've talked about that is heavily dealt with in Babylon 5. It, you do the right thing, regardless of right. how bad this is going to be for you or uh, uncomfortable. You do the right thing. Right. And, and and here they specifically are applying it to the concept of Emma Shocker being a ranger. I just wanted to call that out and just say, you know, that's why I said insert title here. It doesn't matter. 
I, you know, it, it's one of the reasons for this podcast, right? We're here to create meaning. Mm-hmm. We, we both enjoy television, but we want to create meaning in it. And we yes. don't just want it to be mindless entertainment. Right. So, being Trek West 5 means... <laughs> <laughs> okay, listener comments. <sighs> That's right. Okay, we'll start off with uh, uh, Brainy Smurf, since this is up here first. And uh, he says... I watched 10 minutes before I fell asleep. <laughs> Would you mind setting the water down as I read that? I don't want you to actually give a spit take at me. <laughs> I am facing right at you. So. Uh, when new Captain Chick espouses her rationalizations for following Clark, I almost lurched. It is not just this episode. It is JMS's failure to create a believable situation for the entire rebellion... Against Clark's regime, Captain Lockley is yelling at someone, Garibaldi, in this episode, explaining why she thought the right thing to do was to follow orders no matter what. I don't remember the Nazis being let off the hook for obeying Hitler, and uh, and Clark killed more people than he. Didn't the box say that too many times murder was committed by people who were just following orders and so JMS who thinks academics just don't get it is placing a new captain in Babby 5 who supported the slaughter of women and children oh you're going to tell me she didn't support it but she uh, that she didn't support it but she did support but she didn't support the rebellion either she saw injustice and she chose not to act she had a choice, and she chose Clark, and this is a dumb choice because JMS never developed any ideology for the suicidal dictator. So Captain Lockley chose Clark. That's it, right? Joey, please tell me what I am missing. <laughs> Anyone who disagreed with murdering civilians should have joined the Box's rebellion. End of story. When the box negates everything he rebelled against by obsequiously acquiescing to the demands of the new president of the civilian murdering government, he was in turn empowering the very government that enacted all of the atrocities. In my version, we have already thrown this stupid new commanding officer out an airlock. (laughs) Sci-Fi 1, TV 0. I wouldn't say that her only choice is to join the rebellion. She could have simply um, resigned her commission. Sure, that would be... If she refuses to take part in the fighting, goes back to a civilian life, then she's not part of it anymore. Agreed. I I think that that, you're absolutely right there, Aaron. That becomes the... One of the few reasonable choices she could have done without, you know, quote-unquote, breaking the law. (laughs) And then at that point, she can rise up in a civilian rebellion of some sort, which still would be breaking some sort of law along the way at some point, right? Yeah. You, you can't actively seek the uh, <laughs> the overthrow of your government without breaking some law. But uh, anyway, uh, Joey, yeah, there, he, he, was, he was asking yeah. for help here. <laughs> can you help the poor boy? Uh, the, only, the only thing I can say is that the, the reasonable side... Of the other of the other argument, the the people who stayed with Clark and had good reasons for it 
All of those reasons were written down on note cards that were thrown away. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> wow. That is pretty thin, pal. I, I know that uh, in, in his script books, on several occasions, Straczynski has mea culpa. In fact, he literally uses the words mea culpa in this volume um, about the fact that he couldn't ever find a way to write the other side of it rationally. He just couldn't ever bring his mind around to the point where he could see the other point of view. He couldn't go dark like that? He couldn't. That surprises me. Really. Especially knowing Midnight Nation. He, I mean, he tried. He clearly tried, but it never came across as believable. Clearly, he never believed it in himself strongly enough to really write it in a believable sense. He was trying, but I would agree he failed. And he would agree that he failed at that. <laughs> like I said, he, he literally uses the words mea culpa <laughs> in this. Um, the, the one interesting thing, there was, there was something else. Oh, I was going to... I was just going to say, you know, I've talked a few times about the TV show Suits on USA Network that I really enjoy. One of the characters is bemoaning his situation. The other one, he says, you know, I was in this choice where, you know, it was was almost as if someone had a gun to my head making me do this thing I didn't want to go do. And so I went and did the thing because that was, those were my options. And the other person responds, there, when someone's holding a gun to your head telling you, you do this or I'll shoot you. There are a thousand things you can do. Go find them instead of just letting him collapse your world down to these two untenable choices. Right. Find something else. There's always another option. Okay. I I hope that uh, helps you, Brainy Smurf, in (laughs) being able to get past this. Uh, Moneybag says, hey guys, blech. (laughs) On to the episodes. Learning curve. Grown... More down below? This might have been better if it had taken place when we first met the Rangers. Then again, maybe not. <laughs> TV, pass. Sci-fi, pass. Wow. Yeah, he didn't dig it. Okay, Pete, science fiction. Um, I kind of liked some of the little science fiction-y things that were brought up in this. Um, you know, we have the Rangers getting opened up to more than just Earthers and Minbari, you know, and how do we handle that? You know, how are we going to shift ourselves in, you know, creating this interstellar police department? Uh, and, uh, that, I thought that that was pretty neat. That was really about it though. So I'm going to give it a three. Wow. Uh, I gave it a five. I think opening up the process of training the rangers to the viewers I, that get, that gets some credit from me I, I agree with that but there wasn't nearly enough if you want to do that then make the whole stinking episode all about rangers and not this silly um, application of terror okay. I'm done alright Aaron uh, five okay television Pete uh, I had originally written three but I'm gonna have to go with a two I'm also giving it a two. The the throwaway villain, the 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 whole story, that you know they build up the application of terror, and then I watch it and I'm like, okay, where was the terror part? Because at no point in that was anyone instilled with what I would call terror. It, you would have to have I don't know. I, I guess it comes down to for me, 
if I went into the application of terror, you would not be able to show it on cable television. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would have to be pay per view. <laughs> it, it ended up being a very small number of rangers that they showed down there. Yeah. Shouldn't there have been more rangers on Babylon Five? Well, there were only a small number that were invited into this process. All of, right, of, all right. You're you've got on whatever apologist article of clothing you're going to wear, <laughs> uh, Aaron, for television. I like this episode. Oh, no. Aaron, you've just been just holding that back, haven't you? The, the, at the end where they're standing around this bully, and as he's getting the crap beat out of him, they're like, oh, yes, even the Pac I would have loved to have seen this at, like, at school. Just, yes, yes, just beat the crap out of the bully and, and tell him how much he sucks while you're doing it. And just... The, just the, the whole view of the Rangers? Yeah, uh, I gave it six. Wow. The P5 rating is 7.65. Moving on to our next episode, Strange Relations. Bester visits Babylon 5 and rounds up all the telepaths, but leaves empty-handed anyway. <laughs> why isn't he dead yet? <laughs> I like Bester. That's why. Pete likes him. Because <laughs> he wins sometimes. It makes him a better villain. If they don't ever completely defeat Bester. Uh, you know, this starts off with Lita taking the supplies to the telepaths. Yeah. This actually is an inside joke. Um, you know, we, we know that Straczynski had been pushing himself pretty hard for four years now. And everyone on the cast and crew were getting pretty worried about him. He looked like he was about to die. And so Zach, uh, Jeff Conaway, and Lita, Patricia Tallman would bring him vitamins. And the way he says is, not bottles of vitamins, not boxes of bottles of vitamins, but crates of boxes of bottles of vitamins to, to help him somehow, to help him you know, be more healthy kind of thing. And so... How can... Well, crates? Really? <laughs> yeah. He, he talks about it, them being, bringing trash bags full of vitamins in for him to partake of. <laughs> And herbal remedies and things like that. It's weird. <laughs> and so he uh, he made her do this scene as kind of a joke of, well, you know, that's what you do. You you, you take people medication to try and make them feel a little bit better. All right, whatever. Uh, Londo is leaving. Um, maybe or trying to leave. <laughs> yeah. Um. Let's see here. Oh, I came across a question here. Because we have, once again, the telepaths who are saying, Oh, you mundane, you're horrible, you're useless. We don't, we don't have to give you the time of day. You know, sort of this reverse racism. Uh-huh. Um, what would happen if the telepaths had a mundane child? Hmm. And I don't think it's ever addressed within no, this series. But it would be incredible to, to know... What would they do with this child? Would they just automatically shun it, or would they have any sort of you know maternal well, or paternal it's kind instinct? Kind of addressed a little bit. Ivanova's mother had at least one child that is not, strictly speaking, a telepath. She's kind of an, she kind of has some empathic ability, but she's not actually a telepath. She can't 
read anyone else's mind. I, I think you're splitting a hair kind of fine there. I'm saying it maybe it gives us a, a glimpse at it. No, I, I don't think it works because she, she hid herself. She wanted to pretend like she was a mundane. I see. Okay. I'm thinking of Byron and his okay. people... And the people you know the, revel the, in it. the love fest that they eventually will get into in another episode, <laughs> you know, bears off some child. And I I get it, you know, granted that the the percentages will probably be incredibly low that you have a mundane child, but what happens when you do? Would they just say, Look, l- let's just shove you off back to the humans and you're yeah. not one of us? I don't know. It's a good question. Because I mean these people want to go off and start their own society. They want their own planet. And you're, even though they're trying to get away from Earth, they're still going to end up with these other people. And so I'm wondering, would they then treat them as lesser beings because of the fact that they are not telepaths? Right. I think that would be a very, very interesting area to get into. I wonder if, uh, the, if... If Straczynski does the... The, the telepath war? Telepath yeah. war... I would hope he addressed that. That would be interesting. You should tweet that to him. Or Facebook it to him. Uh, I'm, I'm I don't know sure. which one works better. I don't know either. And I'm not sure I could say it in 140 <laughs> characters uh, through a tweet. Uh, I just made a note here. Descartes jokes are lame. I, can we all stop making them now? I think oh, therefore I, I am. Bester, he's sitting with uh, Lockley and he's like, yeah, Descartes and this other person are sitting there having coffee, and Descartes says, I think not, and poof, he just ceased to exist. Oh, I, I, uh, I so. ignored that. Uh, I wanted to punch Byron as he's going <laughs> on to, to lead it, and then I wanted to vomit, because that was so ridiculous. His uh, little love thing. Okay, let, let, me, let me read from the script book about that. I've earlier alluded to the religious commune I belonged to while in my 20s. The process by which I got involved with that group is pretty much exactly what's portrayed here with Lita. Being pulled in by attraction, by a sense of belonging, of community, and of purpose. Even the song the telepaths sing at the end is a variation of a song we used to sing when I lived in community. And the massive hug attack is another tactic used by such groups, including the one I belong to, often called love bombing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this was, I admit, a part of what drew me to lead a story within this arc. If you look at any movement led by a charismatic central figure, they always draw their adherents from the lost, the cast aside, the discarded, and the disillusioned. On a cellular level, we all want to be pu- become part of something bigger than ourselves, to feel a purpose in our existence. For a long time, myth provided that purpose, the story of the tribe, where it came from and where it was going, and what it all meant. For as much as we are surrounded by stories, it seems that myth is not present much in them anymore. For someone who works at In-N-Out Burger, day in and day out, how do they perceive or apprehend their destiny? What are they building for the future or preserving from the past? Most of the daytime jobs humans have to hold on to do not allow them the sense of community and purpose and direction that we need, or the sense of community that we value. Sorry, the sense of continuity. I have a number of friends who virtually live online, pun intended. They form communities on MySpace and other systems, gather in online gaming environments like Final Fantasy, spend hours in chat rooms or instant messaging each other, 
Again, the desire and the need for community has to manifest itself somehow. The most interesting manifestation being the shared experience recast in modern terms. What some of these folks do for fun is to get a group of their friends online and then all at the same moment, queue up a CD or a DVD of a movie and chat with each other online as it plays through. Creating a shared experience between people on different ends of the continent or even the planet. We are communal creatures and in the absence of opportunities for that sense of community, we either dry up or find alternative venues. In the absence of these essentials, we are also easy prey for those who would take advantage of that desire for their own purposes, well-intentioned or otherwise. As Lita fell for it here, and as I fell for it long ago. Um, Still creepy. Yeah. I grant. <laughs> well, let's cover the telepath stuff before we move on to, I guess, a couple of the other minor things in this episode. Um, wh why don't we just send the telepaths down to the planet? To Epsilon 3. Yeah. It it's seems the easiest solution to this problem because... Then they're not within Earth custody, which means that they're with under, you know, within the protection of the planet. And if Psychor tries to go there, the planet's going to go after it. You know what's interesting is in, in preparing for this week's recording, I was doing some research online. And, you know, I looked at some of the fan groups that were around at the time. And everyone was saying, why don't we send them out to the Berkiria homeworld? The Berkiria are the ones that... Or, I'm sorry, not the Mercury, the Markab homeworld. This is the ones that died of the plague. The entire race was wiped out. Look, there's a perfectly functional homeworld out there somewhere. Even all of, like the building structures would still be intact. Somebody just has to go occupy it. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad idea. And they would be secluded away from everyone because we blew up the jump gate. The jump gate. <laughs> um, okay, next question is... Um, why are Lita and Byron always talking? Verbally. Because of Lita. Because of her training in the Psychor and the... They, the, they have presumably all have had training in the Psychor. No. To, to block out thoughts. No, most of them have not. They're, they are people who have never they've managed their whole lives to stay away from the psychor byron told us that in okay but appearance. they still had some sort of training so that they're just not all actively scanning people lita has been indoctrinated to the extent of brainwashing not to use her mind except for when doing official quote-unquote psychor business it has not occurred to her you don't buy that I think it's stupid. Okay. If that's the case, I think less of Lita because of it. Because when she's around other telepaths, it should just be easy enough to slip into telepath speech. You know, even when she's with Bi or with Bester, you know, we've never seen telepaths. Well, in, in, in the case of Bester, I actually understand because she, under no circumstances, wants him in her head. <laughs> Okay. I get that. But it seems like there is some sort of relationship with Byron and the rest of those people that she, sh in my opinion, should be opening up to them. She's not there yet. That's all it is. She's just not there as a character yet. I believe that the reason is that as annoying as they are right 
now, them just staring at each other quietly would be so much more annoying. <laughs> no, it, well, we'd still have the you know the mental conversation that we, goes we've back. Heard that oh, then we'd have to have cheesy sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it has anything. To, I think it is an intentional choice because the character of Lita is not there yet. It's the same reason she doesn't stay with them at night. <clears throat> yet, yet, the, which the, the, is soon to be. Um, you know, remedied as she's going to give up eventually her psychorness, um, and we end this with uh, telepath hymns <laughs> and a telepath choir. Yeah, well, yeah. and at the end, I finally wrote, "What the heck was that candle-filled love in?" And I guess JMS answers what he, you know he was it trying is to a, show. A candle-filled love in. <laughs> it just seemed so weird, and I get. That I, I shouldn't be the one to judge against this. Because if people were to look at, from the outside, the uh, practices of my religion, they might think, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Baptizing the dead, huh? That's pretty weird. Yeah. And in that case, when you compare it to that, candle-filled, you know, hymn-lovings are... Sing-alongs? Just it seemed pretty normal. <laughs> pretty okay. Uh, but still, it just seemed weird. Uh, because, I don't know. It, it just seemed so closely related to, you know, uh, some sort of religious thing. And it was. It was yeah. intended to be that way. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember who said it. But, oh, it was Lockley when she was talking about being married to Sheridan. She makes the comment, in a relationship, oh. you have to take turns being in charge. In my house, that might be nice, actually. If I got to be in charge of everyone. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but, you know, my wife likes to make me be the one that's in charge all the time. I have to I have to make all the decisions and things like that. It'd be nice if every once in a while she made one. I, I, I love you, honey. <laughs> <laughs> She's not still listening to this. I know. But if someone mentions it to her and she comes and listens to it, you know, i got to have that in there. The funny thing is, is... In a little while, she's going to decide that everyone's going to see Breaking Dawn. <laughs> no, she's not. <laughs> she, 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 she actually, we have some friends that, uh, they are, as a couple, they really enjoy Eclipse. And they are like, oh, so you guys are going to go see the they, new they Eclipse movie? They don't want movie? you to ruin it. <laughs> no, they said, so you guys going to go see the new Eclipse movie? And my wife said, well, I am. And they turned to me, you're not going? I said, no, I, I have nothing but disdain for anything to do with vampires. What are you talking about? Eclipse is so great. You would love it. you got to go see it. And I said, no. No, I don't have to go see it. I said, what about your wife? She loves it. You won't even do this for her? My wife said, now hold on here a second. I don't want him there. <laughs> because all he'll do when you're doing is going, ah, ah, <laughs> 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 and will ruin my ability to enjoy the movie. I don't want him to come. Please don't talk him into this. <laughs> That's true. There are some times when you just need me time. And you don't want anyone there because it'll just ruin it. Yeah, good call. Uh, okay. Uh, the the marriage, the Sheridan and Lockley marriage. Marriage. I don't understand why Delenn is so upset about this. It doesn't really make sense. And you're right, it doesn't. But that doesn't mean it's false. It rings true. I, I agree that it. it rings true amongst humans. Well, it's the human half of her. Uh, I Presumably, Sheridan has shared his bed at some time with more than just um, 
his first wife, the shadow wife, Lockley, well, and Lockley her. actually was his first wife. Well, wh- whatever. Presumably he has. Is she going to get that upset next time she runs into somebody yeah, else? Almost certainly. Oh my gosh. I'm not saying let, it let, makes let's, sense. Let's just move on. From I'm not this. saying it makes sense. I, I don't, I can't, I can't understand this. You, you never will. <laughs> okay, with that. so the Centauri cruiser blows up. And presumably this is because someone was trying to kill Londo. That's what I come away with this. Yeah. As. Yeah. Um, That's the best guess. Yeah. And we, because of this, Delan manages to talk Jakar into becoming... Londo's bodyguard. The bodyguard. And uh, so I assume at one point that uh, Jakar is going to need to pick up Londo and cradle him in his arms. Just like the, the well, bodyguard well, movie. Houston sings, I will always love you. <laughs> <laughs> Was I the only one who went there? You mentally? are. You were, but now I'm there. <laughs> and probably will be every time I watch Babylon 5 from now on. <laughs> Good, I've ruined it for you. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, anyway, I Jakar at first hates the idea and then slowly loves the idea. As he realizes all the opportunities this will give him to, to just kneel Centauri society yeah. as a whole. Yeah. Uh, I don't have anything else to talk about. Uh, the one other thing I just wanted to throw out there is, um, I can't remember who made this comment, but problems are solved in pieces. This is something that I don't understand why it's not common sense to people. This is, this is how I solve problems. This is why I'm able to solve problems and people, other people in my company are not, is because I'm able to say, well, let's break it down into the smallest possible problem I know I can solve. Okay, that was solved. Now what else can I solve? And... It, it, I, I am right there with you. The number of times that people have come to me and said, oh, we've got this whole big thing here, and I say, okay, let's stop for a second. Let's identify what's going on here. Okay, we've identified this, so we've got these various pieces here that we need to deal with. Okay, here's what we're going to do with this piece here. Here's what we're going to do with this piece here. And it it baffles me as well that people just don't seem to have this. What, what's the right term for this? The, the problem solving. Yeah. Skills. It, it just seems to be lacking. And I remember sitting in in high school and you know saying, oh, you got to work in this group and you know you got to develop problem solving stuff and you got to learn to work as a team. And we're thinking this is the dumbest thing in the world. I will never use those things. <laughs> use them all the time constantly and sometimes i feel like i'm the only one using them <laughs> okay uh, i just wanted to just to point it out it, it's an important skill and it i is. wish more people would get it <laughs> it is aaron uh, what were you gonna say oh i thought you were gonna say something right i was chuckling it oh chuckling well chuckle away uh, as we read this email from Moneybags. Byron has to get a dig against the mundanes, even when he is warning Lita about the bloodhound units. Groan. I have no stake in the Byron-Lita relationship. It happened much too quickly, and his parable made me want to barf. I don't remember the parable. The shade tree, 
I don't think it, it was. No, I think it sounds like I'm better off not remembering this. Let's move on. <laughs> I, I don't think his problem is that this relationship happened too quickly. I think it's between it's the oh, fact that it's between Byron and yes. Lita. I remember it now. Yeah. I was better off not remembering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she grows up into this willow tree and shades oh, him. Oh. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. Uh, continuing on, he says, It's nice to get a new take on Vester due to Lockley's involvement. But Bar- Garibaldi first thought is to attack Vester in front of Lockley? This is so dumb. You know, I totally agree with him. The fact that Lockley is able to push Garibaldi back and then hits him, I don't believe that for a second. I think if Garibaldi wants to come in there and attack Vester... He throws Lockley out of the way. Can you hold on to that thought for a little while longer? Wait, what? What thought? That Garibaldi didn't... Oh. It was a joke. Got it. I missed it. <laughs> no. Can you hold on to that? Yeah. Oh, what, what are you talking about? I don't know. We weren't anyway, talking about anything. We will get an answer, I think, to that in the next batch of episodes. Next week? Yes. Or next... The next batch of episodes. Recording? <laughs> Whenever that may be. That there actually is which, a legitimate answer to that within the story. The which, by the way, story. are you going to update the Google Calendar? Because we rarely do update I that sucker. Update that. Uh, okay, so moving on. Uh, Lockley was married to Sheridan for about five minutes. Who cares? It's barely mentioned again. Also, I'm, not, uh, I'm just not buying the new Jakar and Londo relationship. Hmm. But hey, any scene with Jurassic and T- Kotsulis is great even if they're arguing about who gets the aisle seat. And the episode ends with the teeps, uh, and the episode ends with the teeps are singing a spiritual. You have got to be kidding me. <laughs> TV6, Sci-Fi 5. Seems a little high for how much hate he yeah. had, yeah. Uh, Brainy Smurf uh, says, um, now let's see here, what, uh, okay. I don't even know if it is this episode where Byron quotes Thomas Aquinas, but here we go. Thomas Aquinas wrote Summa Theologica during the 13th century in Latin. He was an academic, so JMS probably doesn't respect him. <laughs> the, to- the point of Tommy Aqua's metaphysical question involving angel pin dancing was that it doesn't matter what the answer is. It was intended as a tool for sparking debate, or an illustration of circular arguments. JMS might be interested to know that more compelling religious questions have emerged since the Dark Ages. Uh, I think Sci-Fi 7 TV 4. Okay. Okay. Joey, uh, what do you say for science fiction? Uh, With Bester and the, the... The telepaths and the bloodhounds. I'm going to give it a five on science fiction. Aaron, uh, I give it a four. Pete? Yeah, I agree with Aaron. This is a four. This is. I mean, it's better than last episode, but not by much. Okay. Uh, for television, I gave it a four. Same. I gave it a three. Wow. Okay. Yeah, e- even less. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the P5 rating is 7.84. Moving on to our next episode, Secrets of the Soul. Byron and Lita, um, do we really have to talk about this episode? 
Yes. Yes, we do. Okay. It is our responsibility to the public. Pete, is there anyone you'd follow into hell if they asked you to? Um, there have been. Aaron? No, I don't think I'd follow Aaron into hell. You? Who has two thumbs and wants to be followed into hell? <laughs> this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you're gonna you're... have to follow him. He's pushing me in ahead of him. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you mean? I mean, it would be more believable if you were to say, "Who would you like to have drag you down to hell?" <laughs> and if that's the case, you <laughs> absolutely and some hot woman of some sort. You know, I, I'd be happy with either of those two choices. Um, I, I there have been people where I'm like. I would follow that person wherever that person told me to go. Right now, I have a supreme lack of... Inspiring leaders? Yeah. Yeah. I, there just aren't that many out there. So I guess myself. I would follow myself into hell. Okay. And I'll drag myself down there. <laughs> uh, do you? No. 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 There, there has never been anybody that I have trusted enough to give them that much control over my judgment. Hmm. Which is what that, to me, that's what that amounts to. They're saying, I trust this person so implicitly that I have completely handed over my, my faculty of judgment to that person. I've never been able to that completely abandon myself to someone else. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Who In this episode, who was it that said that they... Lita said she would do that for Byron. Wow. I think it's tough to be able to do that because you have to know someone so fundamentally to their core to be able to do that. Or you have to be so incredibly naive to just take everything yeah, whole stock. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way that there might be people that are just that naive, that innocent, that they don't, they don't, they never considered the fact that someone could mislead them. Mm -hmm. They just trust that person implicitly. Yeah. No, oh, okay. That makes it less of an important statement to me. Thank you. <laughs> okay. You're welcome. I'm happy. Yeah. I, I changed you. Have you ever beat somebody up? I have been in one fight in my entire life, and I was in the first grade. <laughs> and after the fight was over, we were in the principal's office, and I was crying like a baby. <laughs> Not because I had been hit or that there was any physical damage to me. Like, I was it's afraid... Just emotional release. I was going to be oh. in trouble with my mother I for see. getting in a fight at school. <laughs> that was it. Did you get in trouble? I don't remember. Oh. All I remember is <laughs> the uh, my, my friend Wyatt and I got into this fight, and all we were doing was really wrestling, and, like, we had each other... You like, haven't even been in a other. fight. Yeah, I, I told you, I haven't really. You've never punched someone in the face? No. Oh, my gosh. You are missing out on oh, one of the geez. weirdest experiences of life. Oh. No, it, it's I, not. It's I, not a great experience by I, any means. I, I have no ambition to break my fingers on someone's jaw or right cheekbone. Right <laughs> if I'm going to do that, I'll go get my kendo stick. How's that? Uh, I've been in a lot of fights. I think yeah, I talked about you, some of them you've the mentioned. Podcast, yes, punching another person in the face is a very interesting experience. It, it can't. I, I can't compare it to anything else I've ever done in my life. There's a, a give to the human head that just doesn't quite exist anywhere else. And it's not, like I said, it's not a pleasurable experience or something you enjoy doing. But having done it once, you never forget what it felt like. Huh. Aaron? 
Well, yeah, I, I could answer Byron's questions. What? When he's asking him, you know, was one better than two? Was, oh, okay. One felt really good, but they're starting to get back up there. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I, I thought for sure the guy would be like, well, one felt pretty good. Two was kind of weird. <laughs> now I'm feeling really uncomfortable about this whole situation. <laughs> If this were a comedy, that would be the, the great line to use. I, I thought Byron was going to get into some sort of, you know, uh, economic explanation about diminishing marginal utility. <laughs> and then show, now, you've noticed uh, that it's not quite as satisfying to punch me anymore, is it? As he brings out the abacus, if you'll notice here. <laughs> the blackboard. <laughs> I, I Every time I watch this episode, I'm always waiting for Byron to somehow telepathically link with the guy so that it feels like the guy's punching himself. <laughs> That's what I want to see happen there. He's like, really? How'd that feel? <laughs> um, that would be a pretty good defense. Yeah. Because we see Lita do the thing with the telepathic slapping. Yes. Yeah, that's right. We did. She was a special person, though, to be able to do that. Um, okay, so we're letting undocumented telepaths onto the station. Yeah. Seemed to me like a security risk. Yeah. If that's the case, then they need to have one of those telepaths right up there next to the uh, the other Babylon 5 people to let them scan that other telepath to know if that is someone who is... Actually know, supposed to be coming through. That's yeah. a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a security risk in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, we get something weird with Zach telling Lita to stop seeing Byron. He's jealous. Yeah, it's still weird. Okay, let me go to the script book here. All right. I didn't realize this would prompt it. If I had known, I would have stayed away from that pitfall. <laughs> Here's what J. Michael Szynski says. Okay, fine. I haven't talked about it. You haven't talked about it. So let's just get to the point, all right? Let's talk about Byron. After the unfortunate passing of Marcus at the end of season four, I felt we'd really lost something in terms of look and feel of the character. Everyone else on the show was buttoned up with short hair and very official. So when it came time to create a love interest for Lita, which I would have had been the love which would have been the love interest for Ivanova had that thread stayed intact, I will admit to having gone shopping for someone with a bit of a Marcus vibe to him. I thought it would be a particularly good idea giving the positive fan reaction to Marcus. Little did I expect the reaction that would accompany Byron's appearance. While many of our female viewers liked him, the reaction by a vast majority of the male viewers, many of whom were perfectly happy with Marcus, was profoundly in the opposite direction. It wasn't just dislike. It was scorn, derision, and outright disdain. Of all the things I did with Babylon 5, that reaction is the one thing that has most consistently puzzled me. Not just the negative reaction, the vehemence with which it was proffered. <laughs> the message board sizzled with comments about him as a hippie, an unwashed jerk, a two-bit messiah. And those are the nicer comments. <laughs> At first, I thought the reaction might have something to do with our tendency to still fight over the 60s, but with the passing of years, I think I've come, it's come down to something a bit more subtle than that. So here, I'm going to offer my theory. If I'm wrong, feel free to tell me so. I think there are two elements to this, the first being more relevant. I think it's fair to say and most sci-fi fans would probably agree with this, that those of us who are sci-fi fans were geeks in school. I certainly was, and most of those I knew were geeks, or at a minimum, were perceived as such. We could only look on with simmering resentment as all the really good-looking girls were scooped up by jocks, 
hunks, and kids with money and cars. We disliked the jocks because we knew that we could never achieve their athletic abilities. We disliked the kids with money because we knew those resources, that well of dollars and influence, was utterly beyond our reach. But those of us who had the burden of unfashionable clothing, thick glasses, pocket protectors, or an ability to perform a chi-square analysis... <laughs> Sorry, lost the thread there. Um, or stammered whenever a member of the opposite sex came within our gravitational fields, not only never had a chance, we knew we never had a chance. Most people we really disliked were the kids who didn't have money or cars or muscles. They were just like us, but they were able to get the, the girls because they just had this sense of style that made them dreamy and let, girls, let them talk girls into the sack. That really pissed us off. Because in theory, that stuff should have been within reach. Because our heads were in our heads, we were that cool. But it never worked out that way. And that's Byron. No money, no resources, no muscles. But good looking and with a sense of style that draws women to him. Without realizing it, I'd inadvertently recreated the one high school archetype that I and most geeks like me hated the most. Worse still, and this is reason two in my theory, he not only went after Lita, he got her. And... Okay, this part doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to read it as Straczynski wrote it. There were a lot of male fans out there who thought that Lita was hot and didn't like to see somebody else get the prom queen. I probably didn't help matters there by having Zack be attracted to Lita, but unable to make anything happen with her. His jealousy is, definite, is on definite display in this episode when he yells at Lita, ostensibly upset about telepaths, but we know it's mainly because he senses competition for her affection. Viewers identified with and liked Zack, and seeing him also unable to get the prom queen further underscored the unfairness of the situation. Uh, I'm going to slightly disagree with you on that. Okay. Considering the extreme drought of hot chicks that we've seen on this series, <laughs> she could well be considered the, the prom queen. Okay, alright. I, I just don't understand why people were getting upset at which characters hooked up within the episode. That didn't. That makes no sense to me. Well, I, I have no emotional connection there whatsoever. But you never will either, <laughs> and, and that's okay. Um, okay, so Byron and Lita getting together, dumb in my yeah. opinion. Um, and this is the episode where we have a weird teep hug fest, um, followed by a teep something else hug fest. Yeah, we'll get to that. So I want to stick with this hug fest. How would you feel, Joey? I would punch every single one of those people <laughs> before they got within arm's range. I everybody just thronged around you and oh, just started hugging God. you. Like, I can't even watch it. Just watching it, I'm like, that is so weird and gross and to stop touching each other! <laughs> the, the thing is, is, this episode I laugh the most at in. Like, this seems to be, I don't know, it's obviously unintended by Straczynski, <laughs> but this is the funniest episode for me by far. Okay. Uh, I'm glad you're able to find humor in it. I just find ickiness. <laughs> because telepaths apparently decide to go on the warpath after this this kid, you know, the new kid um, who can barely talk, who's got the stutter, shows up and he gets beat up by this, you know, other archetype terrible person. So they go on the warpath. I find that weird that Byron had so little control over them. Okay. But whatever. But okay, fine. You know, they all love him and follow him, but, you know, when somebody gets beat up, they're going to go. Well, he was taken out of the... Uh, he, was, he was away, right? 
He was in... But he's still psychically connected. No, they have to see each other. They have to be able to see each other. Okay, so what was all of that flash stuff that we're seeing when Byron is it, looking it, at that kid? It's so... What's it, going on down there is so strong that little pieces of it are leaking out, but they can't make the strength of connection that would be required for him to appeal to their rational side. And I think that it makes sense here. If we look at what we know about telepaths, it makes sense that they go on the warpath here because we've heard about how when telepaths are mentally connected, their emotional states reflect and amplify each other. And so I think it totally makes sense here that absent the presence of Byron as a calming and controlling influence, these people who are angry get together and they get mentally connected to each other and they amplify and reflect that sure, anger. Sure, become this super mob mentality yes. kind of thing. And, and they go off the deep end. Well, they end up finding this guy and they beat the crap out of him. Yeah. And then we have Byron coming over to this guy and holding him like, oh, I feel so bad for this person that, you know, we've just psychically slapped around like crazy. <laughs> and physically, you know, we beat the crap out of. And then it's at this point that the funniest thing in Babylon 5 to this point for me happens. Okay. Where Zack comes around the corner and yells, Freeze! <laughs> <laughs> right as Byron is holding this guy. Like, how ridiculous is this scene? We're just not too long before this. We've got Zack who's saying, Leader, this Byron guy, he's no good. You better stay away from him. And then he comes around and he's like, freeze. <laughs> right at the moment that it looks so terrible for Byron. <laughs> like, he's the one who's been beating up all of these people. Uh, I, I was laughing out loud at this so much. Like, if I, I wish my friend John Madsen, my roommate, had been here. To, to, to hear this, to because the laughter was filling the entire house. <laughs> it was, hands down, the funniest thing that I've seen. And it, not intended, mind you, but the thing I found the funniest. Okay. Um, okay, so we then move on to the creepy love scene. And No, uh, that that's, no. According to my notes, we have... The whole thing with the Hayek and the Hayek Doe, and then the episode ended. <laughs> the episode ends. <laughs> right. But it is an interesting thing, because we get to see us an, another piece about the Vorlons. Yep. Which I think affirms what Brainy Smurf has been saying about the Vorlons all along. They're terrible, terrible people. Um, so we see in Lita's head, just before they get into this, Lita tells Byron... Look, they've changed me in ways. I haven't let anybody else in. <laughs> <laughs> so they engage in some act. And we then get to see flashes inside Lita. Where she is in this tank of water. Bacta, I think, actually. Of what? Bacta? Bacta tank. Star Wars. <laughs> oh, okay. Whatever. Alright. Um, and... She in in that state, she is looking around and she sees what is the second funniest thing I found in this episode, <laughs> which is babies the floating Jesus. in jars. Fidei. <laughs> What's the part of fetus? The, the yeah, whole I believe it's fetus. The, the whole alien baby thing. 
is just too ridiculous not to laugh at in this episode. Okay. Um, and uh, I found it more disturbing than funny, but again, I'm glad you were able to laugh at it. It was. It just looks so ridiculous <laughs> that they had this, you know, thing right next to Lita. They pan over. Ah, alien baby! <laughs> As they're making these <laughs> telepaths. See, it's funny. It's certainly funny the way you present it. <laughs> uh, anyway, and of course, yes, we have the creepy. You know, everyone's watching through the very thin material. Oh, well, not just, just that. watching. She connects them all telepathically to the event that's going on. Yes, very, very weird. And uh, and then, of course. They decide that it's the Vorlon's fault. And, um, and that we, the Alliance we, owes them a living because of what the Vorlons did to them. Yeah. we Screw you, Byron. <laughs> you are not entitled to anything you don't make for yourself. <laughs> Go on. Call him a looter. He's a looter! <laughs> he says, we would be normal. They are responsible for this. He doesn't want to be normal. He spent... Nothing but the past eight episodes yes. telling us how much he, he revels in his difference. I and know. And here he is. Oh, I indignant. How dare they? Yes. How dare they make me the thing I love being? Where do they get off? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I believe, I'm pretty sure, I still haven't identified what they are the 99% of, but I think that Byron's part of the 99%. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Anyway, that's the telepath side of the story. It's Occupy Babylon 5. (laughs) (laughs) It is! It absolutely is! The telepaths are occupying Babylon 5! Once again, J. Michael Straczynski is way ahead of his time. Uh, 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 and then we have the the other storyline to this, which was the, the Franklin Hayek. Hayek and the Hayaku Hayek Do Hayek Do, um, which uh, I, I it seemed weird that Franklin was like really being so mean to them because they were hiding this thing about their past. Yeah, it did seem inconsistent with Franklin's character a little bit. Yeah, I mean, how can you hold them responsible for wanting to hide a bit of their... just? They didn't do this. They're just hiding the history of something that happened centuries ago. Yeah, 1,200 years ago. Why is it that, you know, we have to be forthright about this to everyone out there? There's no moral uh, imperative uh, impropriety going on there with those aliens. No, I'm with you. It didn't make sense to me. This felt like that Franklin is trying to, you know, be the, you know, I'm going to be the voice that they never had. The this was wrong. You know, nobody ever did this because they hit it so well. So I'm going to be that guy who says, you know. If so, it's okay. still stupid. Uh, yeah. Okay, but fine. But that, that, that's that's fine. If any of the Hayak Doe are still alive, if they're alive, then yes, we should be protecting them and helping them in some form. But they're not. And not only that, you're, as a race, you're paying the price anyway. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, personally, I would have felt sorry for him rather than mad. There, there was one interesting thing yeah. out of that exchange at the end that I wanted to point out. I'm wondering if. If Straczynski, through the character of Franklin, made a reference to Orson Scott Card, Franklin says, "I'm not a speaker for the dead." Mm. Hmm. Oh, maybe. I, 
that is one of my favorite concepts from the Ender series, the whole yeah. approach of Speaker for the Dead and how we deal with the passing of a person from this life. Mm. And, I, and so I latched on to that idea. When I heard him say that, I thought, oh, I wonder if that's a reference to Speaker for the Dead the, and, and the role that Ender Wiggin plays in that trilogy right. of six books. Here is uh, <laughs> a, another funny scene that I, I laughed at, which is Franklin... Uh, he says, oh, you don't have to worry. Security is you know, paramount with us. The, we have a triple encoded file that if you enter in the wrong password, deletes itself. Yeah. And we only have one copy of this file. So all someone, anyone has to do is just try to open it up and it's deleted. It's, and it's, all of it is gone. How incredibly stupid <laughs> is that? Well... I think I think Franklin may have been exaggerating this scenario a little bit to make these people more comfortable because there's absolutely no way Babylon 5's computers are not backed up nightly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just no way. I'm you just sorry. see like a, a programmer sitting over by looking at Franklin going, well, it's not. No, it's, no, it's not. <laughs> I've got a copy up on my computer right here. <laughs> why, why are you lying to them? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, anything else? No. Okay. Nothing happened after that. <laughs> uh, let's go to uh, uh, Brainy Smurf. He says, I don't know which one is the B story, but Dr. Love... <laughs> <laughs> really? I think it's obvious. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> but Dr. Love was barely even annoying in this one. Considering those dumb space potato aliens, I feel like I heard that story on a uh, on countless Trek episodes. Additionally, these potato aliens are a lot like the Ood. The description of the Pakmara is compelling, as they believe their divine purpose is refuse consumption. <laughs> Interesting metaphor. On a similar note, I once read that Gandhi used to love to dissect his own fecal matter. But, uh, dissect? Dissect. Okay, well, that's better than digest, which is what I thought you meant. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Gross. No. <laughs> yes, because dissecting it is so much better. Uh, as for the teeps, I appreciate that JMS is attempting to weave a compelling yarn that leads us to a telepath war. Byron is an extreme separatist, conflicted with a rebellion against his proverbial maker. It is almost like the prophet Isaiah's depiction of the fall of the morning star. In this Babby 5 version, the roles are pseudo-reversed. The creator is not God, but a million-year-old race of murderously brain-tinkering Vorlons. So it's like as if Lucifer would have suffered a rebellion of some demon of his creation. Very interesting, JMS. I really wish you had more time to write Instead of being unwilling to delegate the responsibilities of every other role attached to TV production, <laughs> telepath, uh, telepathy is such a great sci-fi topic. I would have loved to see a teep war develop instead of the Martian tunnel people or the nondescript regime of Clark the Claw. At least Psychor has a symbol, an ideology, and a face. Potato aliens are stupid. Sci-Fi 5, TV 6. He must have appreciated the humor in all of that, as I did. Um, let's see here. We've got money bags. Why does Byron suddenly think that the telepaths are owed a homeworld? 
If anyone owes them a homeworld, it's the Vorlons. Of course, they're long gone. The Mundanes didn't ask the Vorlons to modify the Teeps. Knowing about the Vorlons' involvement doesn't mean they deserve a homeworld any more or any less than before. Go get it from them. They're out beyond their rim. <laughs> no, go take their homeworld. It's abandoned. <laughs> no, there's too much technology there. They're not allowed. <laughs> as far as the Franklin plot, I could not possibly care any less. We never heard of this race, and we never will again. And haven't we seen a variation of this idea at least once before? Sci-Fi 4, TV 4. Okay. Aaron, science fiction. Uh, I'm going to give this a six. I really liked this race and what they did with the, you know, them them killing themselves because they fought against this other uh, other species on their planet. Um, it had elements as well of horrible, horrible telepathicness, but yeah, <laughs> six. I'm going to give this a five. I feel it's middle of the road. Yes, we have seen the the Doctor Franklin line many many times with with this um this wasn't done as well as we've seen it other times i think it could be improved if we number one got the you know indignation correct mm -hmm. out of franklin okay um and if um we we don't have the gosh it, it, it almost feels like the cliche detective movie where you know, you hear the, the guy giving the internal monologue. Okay. I, I get that Franklin is supposed to be reading his log, you know, his his notes or whatever, but it's still, like, the way it was produced didn't come off awesome. So, okay. only a five. Um, I disagree with both you guys. Okay. I'm not saying that... <laughs> How low are you going? <laughs> no, no. I'm not saying that I like this episode. I just want that to be clear. And it will be clear when I give my TV rating. But there is some incredibly science fiction-y stuff here. The races that were were symbiotic without even knowing it, and wiped one wiped the other one out. That is heavy-duty science fiction. Both of our listeners said it. We've seen this before. Doesn't mean it's original. I'm not saying it's original. But it is very science fiction. Also, the telepath stuff. Disgusting, unappealing as it may be. Very science fiction. I'm giving this an 8 for science fiction. Jeez. Wow. Aaron? Uh, TV? Yes, TV rating. I'm going to give this a, will bleach in my eyes, scrub the memory <laughs> this episode out of my mind. I'm going to give it a one. Okay. That Eight? just ruined it. Uh, you know what? I give this a three. It would have gotten less, wow. but I laughed so much in <laughs> okay. this. Yeah, right. Like, right. It, to the point that I, I know it wasn't the point to be funny, yeah. but I found an immense amount of humor out of this. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm giving it a, can I watch TKO instead? <laughs> For TV. I would rather watch TKO than watch this episode ever, ever again. I would rather Babylon 5 were made of nothing but TKO than to watch this episode. <laughs> the funny thing is, is you, it wasn't this episode that you told us that we could skip. I don't have an apology from Tim Michaels. I think I've owned one, but I don't have one. <laughs> uh, the P5 rating is 7.62. Moving on to our next episode, Day of the Dead. Rebo and Zudi visit Babylon 5. Really? That's it? <laughs> That's the highlight? Uh, that, that's that's the summary. 
that is like the worst part of the episode. Did you notice too. this episode was written by Neil Gaiman? Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, so he did hand off a little bit here. Uh, Neil Gaiman had asked Straczynski, I'd really like to write an episode before you're before you're done with this thing. And so he said, okay, yeah. So he took all of his scripts, and, or not all of them, but a whole bunch of his scripts, and boxed them up and sent them to Ga- Gaiman so that he could read the scripts and get a feel for the characters. He says, we exchanged emails and we were on the phone a lot, but Gaiman wrote this script. The only line that Straczynski wrote in this script is, the message from Kosh. And, and and that was, Gaiman said, okay, if Kosh had a message for Sheridan, what would it be? And Straczynski said, I'm so glad you asked because I've been trying to find a place to work this line in. I need it in there. <laughs> Let's do it now. So, Which is weird because I, it doesn't make sense in, in this episode how it gets delivered. Because Lockley is the one who gives it to Sheridan. Zoe gave it to Lockley. Zoe gave it to Lockley? Yes. You must have you must have tuned out in that part. Uh, I guess. I she, guess. She, Zoe is telling Lockley, "I have an important thing I have to tell you before I go," and they cut away, so we don't hear the line until Lockley and Sheridan meet up later in the episode. But we know that Zoe brought some important message from the other side, and that's what it is. It, it still is. I'm pretty sure Zooty Zoot Zoot was also written by. Straczynski wasn't it <laughs> okay fair <laughs> but Neil Gaiman is the one that chose to quote Straczynski ah, I see. Uh, which by the way Neil Gaiman I was I chatting with you the other day and I said oh wow he wrote yep. an episode of Doctor Who yeah and uh, I'm a huge fan of Doctor Who and um, I can't remember now it was uh, season six it would have been in the first four Episodes. I'm a huge Neil Gaiman fan. I don't. I don't know if you've ever partaken. I don't think I've any ever of his read any stuff. of his books, but I know that name. He. Uh, I. I. I think you might really enjoy Coraline. Maybe we'll have to do it for a culture corner, so you can get some exposure. Oh, to okay. It. The book that the movie is based on, and also in, he was heavily involved with. If you watch the movie, you will very get it. It's not like some movies, movie to book adaptations. The, the movie is a very strong representation of what the book was intended to be. Hmm. Okay, so Penn and Teller uh, show up. Yeah. Harlan Ellison, creative consultant to Babylon 5, is the voice of the box, by the way. Okay. Not Bruce Boxleitner, but rather Z- Rebo or Zudi. I, I can't remember which one. I it don't is. know, and I don't know. One that doesn't talk. And it doesn't matter. I think it's Zudi. Doesn't matter. You're, you're, you're a fan of Penn and Teller, right? I love Penn and Teller. I there's nothing in this that I see that is Penn and Teller. Really? Wow! I got that in stereo. <laughs> <laughs> Smiths in stereo. What <laughs> a terrifying thought. <laughs> I, I just what I think of and have seen of Penn and Teller didn't come through in this episode when they were being serious with. Uh, Delenn and and a little bit shared towards the end. That is very much, I think, my perception of Penn and Teller. It, it just the real they, comedy is up in the Senate where they're telling the joke. I I don't think they add anything to this episode okay. though, which I is would, a, which is a shame. That. Okay, I would agree with that. Uh, uh, unlike their appearance on the West Wing, yes, which was stellar. Really, this is just a cameo. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so we come to find out that uh, we're selling a part of the ship of Babylon 5, excuse me, to the Brakiri. For 24 hours. Yes. Or a day. Well, really, just a... A night? A sunset. <laughs> sunset to sunrise. Yeah. Whatever. Um, and that, that, as I think back on it now, it still doesn't make sense. It becomes more mystical than it does science fiction-y. Because it's supposed to, the Brakiri is supposed to be like, hey, you know, the asteroid, the comet is bringing this gift to us. And it only happens every 200 years, you know, it coincides with the coming of this comet that the dead revisit um, people. Yeah. And it would be nice if we could get a little more understanding of what happens on the planet. Because if it's on the planet, does that mean that everybody gets revisited by somebody from the dead? That seems to be the implication. Yeah. It does, but... It'd be we, kind of busy there for a little while, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> and would the dead come back to the children? That's got to be terribly frightening. <laughs> well, Mommy, it only happens this once every man here? Years. Oh, that's your grandfather. Oh, I don't know my grandfather. <laughs> I, I could see them sitting down as like a family waiting for, you know... One of their honored dead to come and speak to them. Yeah, sure. It, I, I like all of that, but in the end it's all speculation because we don't know yeah. for certain. And it would have been nice to have gotten a little more backstory about that. It, personally, if we could have made the entire episode all about that and just chucked out the Rebone Zooty crap, I would have thoroughly enjoyed this okay. more than you know just enjoying. Um well, for once, our comments are directed at Mr. Gaiman, not Mr. <laughs> um, Jakar apparently is against this. He's heard about it, and he says, no, this is terrible, this is a bad idea, don't let this happen. Yeah. So, it happens, though. They sell it off, and they go through and... On every deck level, and they, draw this line. They chalk in where the Brakiri, you know, quote-unquote, area is. Um, and they do the old em 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 embassy joke. Look, now I'm in the U.S. <laughs> no, I'm in China. <laughs> <laughs> and we come to find out. So here are the people. We get Adira returns to Londo. Uh, Dodger returns to Garibaldi. Then we have Zoe returning to Lockley. And we have Mr. Morden returning to Lanier. Lanier. Yeah. Which, of all of those things... Mr. Morden makes the least amount of sense. I'm hoping that you can help to explain something more about that. Okay, well, unfortunately, because it's not a Straczynski script, we have nothing from Straczynski on this episode. Yeah, that's a shame. But I, I think it makes sense, actually. Okay, so let's cover the linear portion of this. this so, thing. everyone who's there with, I would say, an honest intent gets what is more of a comforting visit. But Lanier, who is there with, I would say, somewhat of a dishonest intent, he wants answers to questions. He, he, he is seeking... I, it, it's clear that he's expecting something bad, right? Because the first thing he does is he puts his Minbari fighting pike down in front of yeah. him. It, it's something about what's going on in your mind. What's your mental state at the time it happens that... Uh, that appears to dictate what kind of visitation you get. And Lanier is in a dark place when it happens. And so he gets a very dark visit. Instead of getting, you know, if he'd come in with 
a more open heart and you know a, a more happy and, and positive attitude, I think he might have gotten a visit from Marcus, hmm. telling him, "Hey, way to go, join in the Rangers, there, pal. Do a good job." <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that that's what he would get <laughs> yeah, from Marcus. You, but you don't, think, you don't think that's how the conversation would go? Okay. But, but yeah, whatever. I but, get the sentiment you were trying to get across there. I think it's because of where mm-hmm. Lanier's mental state is at the time. He's in a very dark place. And therefore, it makes sense to me that Morden, the thing he fears and is terrified of and hates, is what visits him. The physical embodiment of the the, the shadow. Of the darkness, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, l- let me ask you this. This is what I'm just going to call mysticism at this point. Okay. Is this spell that the Brakiri set upon this area of uh, Babylon 5 is it something that affects the people to the point where those who are within that area they're not actually visited by someone who is dead but what their perception of that person would be. So it's really themselves that they're getting embodied in some form. That's the way I view it. Okay. Okay. Um, again, we don't have an answer to yeah, that, but it, uh, it's just an, I, a, a question I had. Um, so, Morden tells Lanier that he will betray the Anlashak. Right. And that's, that is actually the thing that makes me say what I said. That it is, it is their own perception that they're, they're interacting with a piece of themselves. And it's because Lanier <clears throat> knows that he did not enter the Anlashak with pure intent. And he knows that with what the Anlashak are and what it means in Minbari culture, it's his fear that he will betray the Anlashak. Hmm. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. What? What? Ah! You just to, gave to, away season five. Fine. We can cut that. <laughs> I don't care anymore. <laughs> We're past the big so stuff. Far, yeah. it, it really doesn't matter anymore. Um, okay, so here's the question. Would you want to listen to Morden? If Morden shows up, if you're the person in there, about that. because he is the you know the the human embodiment of the shadow, as we've seen throughout all of Babylon Five, he represents nothing but evil, or so we have been conditioned to think he represents nothing but evil. He represents, in my opinion, selfishness. Right. I was going to say not evil. So much well, it, 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 amongst the people, that everyone thinks the shadow are evil. It's clear that from the conversation, if we're going to accept the premise that this is a piece of Lanier and not some third party, it's clear that Lanier understands at some level that the shadows are not pure evil because Morton tells him, don't believe everything you hear about me. You, can, you give a dog a bad name, you can hang him by it. I'm not everything I've been made out to be. So on some level... If we're accepting that premise, Lanier understands, yeah, Morden is not necessarily evil, but he is something to not be desired, something to not be followed or, or emulated. So, getting back to the question then, would you sit there and listen to what Morden had to say, or would you just say, you know what, I recognize you as uh, an agent of the enemy, and therefore I don't want whatever grain of truth you might give me is going to be poisoned tenfold with you know all of this other hate and you know gall 
that you're going to wrap up that bit of truth in. You know, we talked uh, last week about how I hope that other people are smarter than I am <laughs> and can learn from not as quite as drastic measures as I've taken to learn. Um, and I think this would be a good example of that because I can say not only would I listen to that part of myself, but I regularly do. I let that part of myself talk to me more often than I should and dictate my courses in life more often than I should. Wow. That's a bold uh, uh, statement to make there. The, 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 the fear of doing things wrong and of not living up to what I can be has prevented me in life from doing a lot of things that I wanted to do. Hmm. So you think that you would end up listening to more? I would, unfortunately. I wish I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I think that I would end up listening to Morden as well. Because from my perspective, I know who the Shadow are. And I know how to deal with their kind. So hearing what he has to say, I, I hopefully wouldn't be... I wouldn't succumb to the poison that, you know, the grain of truth is he's going to try and give me. I can tell you, my wife, I guarantee you, if you ask her this question and if she were able to put herself in the place to actually think about it objectively, she would say, no, I wouldn't listen to that. Why, why would you? Right. And, and, and she gets mad at me when she discovers that I have done that. That I have listened to my lesser angels, if you will. I can just, I'm just picturing like you in some closet saying, you know, in your dark place. And she opens the door. She's like, Joey, what are you doing thinking about those dark things? <laughs> not, not completely wrong. I mean, you went a little more... Literal with the I metaphor. Know. But... <laughs> I know. Uh, you but... said you wouldn't enter the doom closet anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, what about you? I think this is the only time I, I would have listened to him. I, ah! I would have listened to him when he was alive. Well, we, we have someone who might disagree with you on that. I think you live every day of your life with Morton walking beside you doing this. <laughs> oh, that is... That's so mean. It's not mean. I'm trying to be... I, I'm loving him here, Pete. I'm telling him, <laughs> quit listening to Morton. Can't, can't you feel it? <laughs> oh, I get who Morton is now. <laughs> Morton is Joey. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? I think that a lot of the decisions, Aaron, that you make in your life come from that voice, that same voice that Lanier is listening to here. And if you would stop listening to it, I think you'd be in a lot better place in your life. Hmm. Okay, so let's cover some of the other people. Um, Lieutenant never gets promoted? Oh. Who is that? Sorry. Corwin. <laughs> he's not one of the... He's not one of the I was trying to make a joke. Don't oh. Okay. Lieutenant Corwin lets Jakar sleep up in CNC. <laughs> Seems weird, yeah. because, like... What? He's going to let him lay on the floor in the middle of this brightly lit room? Jakar could easily go and find any of the... Narn on Babylon 5 and he, they would let him sleep in their quarters. Yeah. They would probably give them their bed. <laughs> and he chooses to go to CNC. Well, yeah, then they'd be in the CNC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then that would be awkward. Um, well, he knows Jakar. I mean, he's, you know, been part of his stuff. Alright, do you want to cover Adira, Dodger, or Zoe next? Ah, you pick. I'm not particularly... Aaron? Dodger. Dodger. Okay, now I remember Bob, uh, sorry, SpongeBob, hates that woman. 
Good for her. <laughs> I actually don't mind her. Now, granted, the episode where she appeared in was terrible. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. But I still didn't mind the character of Dodger. One-dimensional, brute characters. You know, I, I, that's why I like the character of Jane in uh, Firefly. One-dimensional, brute characters. Yeah, but the thing is, we only get one episode, really, about this woman. We don't ever truly get to know her. Okay. And I think she's attractive. Uh, Okay. I think she's pretty. Here's the one and only good thing Dodger has ever done. It has introduced us to the principle that any Emily Dickinson poem can be sung to the tune The Yellow Rose of Texas. Oh, brother. That's it. Yeah, everything else is worthless. You didn't know that before then? I didn't. Uh-uh. Oh, that's, that surprises me. Although I as do much know, as you know about poetry. Yeah, well, I don't know anything about the tune The Yellows of Texas, so. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I actually knew that in, in high school when we covered poetry. That was the teacher, when we covered the Emily Dickens and stuff, he was like, oh yeah, this, by the way, every one of her poems can be sung to that. I suppose if I had learned poetry from a teacher somewhere along the lines, I probably would have learned that. But probably. Uh, it's been self-education. No, the interesting thing I just want to point out is the first thing that she uses as an example is not an Emily Dickinson poem. I can't remember now. I went and looked it up. I can't remember who wrote it. Oh, but it's not even an Emily Dickinson poem. How, how did they get that wrong? So is well, there... it's been a couple thousand years, hasn't it? <laughs> All right. It's just error in record keeping that's propagated over 1500 years anything that goes <laughs> along with the yellow rose of texas has been attributed to <laughs> i like that Aaron. I including like that the songs the yellow rose of texas <laughs> this is really weird because it's so inconsistent with her other material <laughs> um okay so is there anything in the dodger and garibaldi stuff that is helpful to garibaldi yes Go, go back and, and be with Lise. Really? Yeah. Okay. And I, that's, so that's helpful for Mr. Garibaldi. Yeah. Okay. Uh, who's up next, Aaron? Do you want to do Zoe or Adira? I like Adira. Okay. Adira, I don't think there's anything here. No. There's I think no it's content. just Londo just enjoying what he once had. I think he got the best out of the... It's the last spin around the galaxy before he goes and accepts the chains of being emperor. Emperor? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a sweet moment for him. He's had the change in his life, so he can truly now appreciate this moment of of joy and happiness that he could have been able to receive with, you know, this woman, Adira, uh, if, you know, things had not turned out so poorly for him because of his decisions. Yeah. Um... Okay, so next person is Zoe, who is the only one in here that we have never met before. Right. And this is a part of Lockley's past. And Zoe is her sister? No. Just a friend. Just a friend. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, she always refers to him as my father. That's, Lockley's yeah. talking about her dad. My dad was looking for me, and my dad found me. This is just some kind of friend that they ran off together and went and lived in a burned out hotel yeah it, it, it was very very weird because it doesn't seem like someone like that could rise to the level of captain within the earth alliance but i guess whatever well, sure people can turn around sure 
Uh, is there anything I've in... I've visited the post of co-host of Trek West 5. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> is there anything in the, the Zoe and Lockley stuff that is worthwhile? Is there anything that to, to Aside discuss Aside from the message there? from Kosh? Yes. Let's cover the Kosh thing separately okay. because I have my own questions about that. Okay. I think um, there is. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say there's at least there's a little bit of character development for Lockley. Yeah, I, I like the fact that there is some backstory to her, and I like the fact that she has to confront what is for her an ugly part of her past, and it is something that she can't hide from, can't run away from, and she finally has to fess up to the fact that, um, or not, sorry, uh, uh, her friend Zoe finally tells her, look, I did this on purpose. And for Lockley, it's a matter of she, she can let go. She can release a little bit. She has an answer to a question that's been really plaguing her on the inside. Um, and I think that for that aspect, the, the feeling of being able to release, you know, what is a terrible memory is, is worthwhile. I, as much as I find the, the girl Zoe creepy only because I think the actress nailed what it must be like to be a junkie okay um, it, it was good I enjoyed it okay do you notice Morton got a haircut yes I did notice that <laughs> and I I didn't care for it I didn't either he Morton looked... is part of him is creepy because he's got that slicked back yeah, yeah. look of you know the the fluffy poofed hair uh, you know yeah I, I think uh they should have had uh, hair and makeup. So, Pete, who do you think would come visit you? Who do I think would come visit me? Yeah. The trouble is, I've not had that many, that much death around me. Really, I've had grandparents who I barely knew. Okay. So there's no one close to me that has, you know, affected me in any great way. I, you know, in the case of Lanier, you know, he's got this horrible enemy <laughs> of the universe that shows up. I don't even think I even have that, you know, that so I what, what you're telling so me is that we need to kill someone next to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, kill Aaron. I would like to have nothing. Aaron come back and visit me. Nothing when you were a kid or... No, honestly, no. Oh. I never had any friends who, you know, died mysteriously. I never had... Uh, any family members? Um, I, honestly, there. I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. At some point, <laughs> people are just going to start dying everywhere. Um, my sister survived a very severe brain tumor. Okay. If she had died, she would be the person that I would okay. want to come back because of all of my family member, I'm closest with her. Okay. Aaron. I have no idea. Do you, have, do you have anybody that you think might? Okay, let's change the question to who do you think I would might probably come get to... Morden. <laughs> <laughs> Morden is there to comfort you. <laughs> not even a real person, darn it. Uh, instead of, you know, who who do you think might come and visit you, who would you want to come and visit you? That's a good way to put it. Because, in the, I mean, if we think about it, in the case of Lanier... It, he didn't want Morden to show up. It's 
but you know he kind of did on some level. Yeah. Well, eh, you think so? That's, I, my, I'm that's, not, that's my. That's my. Yeah. yeah. You're not sold. Not totally. Okay. No. I don't know. All right, that's fair. Joey? I had a list of 13 people. <laughs> Neither one of you could come up with one. It's amazing. Um, I, I would say that the person that... So I'm, I'm basing this on the assumption that going into this event, I know I'm going to be talking with someone oh. dead that, that was meant something to me or was strongly connected to my life in some way. And the person who would first come to my mind is the person that I assume I would see. So the person that I'm kind of, I come up with is a kid by the name of Stephen Baker. I think I've mentioned him before on the podcast. You might have. Um, when I was very young, he was, he, he was stricken with muscular dystrophy. And I saw him waste away to absolutely nothing and then die. When I was, I, I was in fifth grade when he passed away. And when we were young, we were very close. We were very good friends. And then I watched him go from that to being, and not to be offensive here, this is a person who's very dear to me, but a slobbering vegetable. Mm-hmm. Couldn't keep his head up, you know, head lolling to the side, slobber running up the side of his mouth. Absolute no control over his own body. Yeah. And and to watch that slow deterioration, or I guess it's not, not actually that slow, because I only knew, I could only remember the guy for like five years. I remember him going from being a normal kid to couldn't even, you know, he had to be propped up to lay down or he would choke to death on his own saliva. Is that because you, and I don't say this jokingly, but is that because you have, you know, on the inside of you the the terror of knowing that your body is slowly going to decay to nothing to the point that you would have no control over it? Is that why I would see him? Is that what you're saying? Yes. No, it would be because out of all the deaths of all the people that I was ever close to, he's still very close to me in my heart. I, I, I keep that friendship. Interesting. Very close. I, you know, it was when I was young, I didn't have a whole lot of normal in my life. You know, I had a lot of weird crap running around. Mm-hmm. I had one really close friend, and he died on me. And to this day, I look back and say, you know, for for that period of my life, up until probably a good five years after that, he was the only person. I, if you'd asked me, who's your who's your friend? Who are your friends? I could have listed one person, and he was dead. And that you know that still kind of sticks with me, and and I miss him very much. I wonder what we you know what our friendship would have evolved into over the years. Would we still be close? You know, because I moved away. I don't know. I don't know where that thing would have gone. And it's something that always, I wouldn't say it eats at me necessarily, but it's something that's always in the back of my mind of, yeah, I remember Stephen. And he was the first death. He, he was, you know, I, 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 I read shortly before he died, I had read um, Bridge to Terabithia. Mm-hmm. And when he died, you know, he, he, he was that first brush with death in my life. Much like the character of Jess has in, in the story Bridge to Terabithia. Yeah. And so it stuck with me as a result of that, you know, really close friendship and then to watch him wilt away and die. Now, what you mentioned, you know, this fear I have and and I, I would say almost even hatred of my own body. Mm-hmm. I think part of that is an outgrowth 
of watching that deterioration process. I see. I have always been afraid of and kind of at, at odds with my own body because I, I've seen what it can do. I've seen what it can create. And, and I live to this day with this fear of being crippled and, and trapped inside my own body as a result. Yeah. Yeah. One minor chemical imbalance somewhere in your... Yeah. It's know, amazing. As you it's put incredible. it, a, a drooling vegetable. And by the way, to this day, I still give to Jerry's kids. Every time the guys come by, I, I you know, hope someday we can solve... What a terrible, terrible disease. Yeah. Um, while you were talking there, I suddenly realized there is one person that... Uh, I was close with when, uh, when I lived in Scotland. I served as a missionary and, and lived there. I got to know in the in one of the areas I lived in, the city of Perth, I got to know who I consider my grandmother now, uh, this woman that I met, uh, who I, I'm, I'm confident is dead now because she was quite old back then. Yeah. Um, I would very much like to have her come back. That was, that was, I, I have, I think I've mentioned my grandma Craiger, my Carrie Craiger that we, we grew up with. Do you remember Carrie? Oh, that's unfortunate. You, you have no idea what you're missing by now. I have like, like a, a few snapshots from... Don't hold it against him. It's not his fault. It is his fault. <laughs> it's not his fault. <laughs> he, he chooses to leave that mental block in place. Um, no, she, 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 like you said. We called her Grandma Crager. She was not related to us by any means. It was an old woman that my mother took care of. Uh-huh. But she was the nicest old lady and baked us, you know, brought us baked goods all the time. Although half the time they tasted really foul. <laughs> we ate them because we were kids and they were baked goods, you know. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I, I have. But she was. She's not the person that comes to mind first. I actually, right after we got married, I took my wife. I think it was actually during our honeymoon. Uh, we went up to Wyoming to go meet her. I took my wife to meet her because this was a woman who was so important in my life. I wanted her to meet meet the woman I had married. Was she already dead at this no, point? No, she was still alive. Oh, okay. She was so ancient, though. I think she I think she was like a hundred years old at that point. Wow, pretty close, like in her late nineties or early hundreds. And you know, I was like, we got to get up there before this lady leaves us. I want her to meet you. <laughs> um. Okay. So. A message from Kosh to Sheridan. Yes. When the long night comes, return to the end of the beginning. I want to punch him. <laughs> you just don't like the whole speaking in metaphor thing. No, I don't. I absolutely I do. I enjoy don't. it. I wish people would speak to me in metaphor more often. Metaphor is just another form of riddle to me. I like riddles. I don't care for that. <laughs> so, so what we need is some sort of, you know, time traveling people only speaking in metaphor <laughs> show for you. Um, okay, so w- I guess we're gonna f- come to find out what that means yes. later on. But when, when why, why does Kosh need to deliver this message? Somebody needed to, and Kosh right. is dead. All right, I guess. Do you want me to tell you what the intent of the message is without... I think I can say this you, without you, spoiling it. You can tell me okay. after we, you know, close things off here. Okay. Um, all right. Good night, it. everybody. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that's all I had to... I, I like about. when Lanier tries to escape from the room and Martin pulls him back in and he tells him, the other side of that corridor is 200 million light years away. The air is spread a little thinly over that distance. 
I got a, I got a kick out of that. Um, then the other one is uh, Londo is talking about how, well, they made me emperor. Anyone could be emperor. Vera could be emperor. A cat could be emperor. A small human cat could be emperor. I just wanted to remind everyone, Londo doesn't know the difference between a cat and a duck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. So is he thinking about a He's duck? He's thinking here? about a duck. That's that, One of those, you know, web feet, bills, quack. Oh, yeah, it's a cat. Right, the cat. <laughs> All right. Uh, Joey, anything else? No. Aaron? Okay. Uh, we'll go on to Moneybag's uh, comments. He says, okay, this is just weird. Part of Babylon 5 transforms due to... What? Magic? <laughs> I would have much rather that everyone had just had a regular plain old dream about someone dead. My write-up for this one is a bit long, because I'm going to rewrite the episode. Wow. And it is. It's, it's pretty long. Londo and Adira was boring. We don't learn anything new about Londo here. He loves Adira. Yep, we knew that. How about Cartagia instead? Yeah. That would have been pretty interesting. I, that, that's who I always... When I, I can't, when I can't remember every once in a while I watch this episode, I'm like, wait, who did Londo get? Oh, man, Cartagia awesome <laughs> if not Cartagia let it be Lord Rifa that's the other one I always think of yeah yeah I, I would love to see probably I would like to see Lord Rifa more than Cartagia Cartagia is his own like persona that is just uh, like crazy Rifa really interacted with Londo and so there would be uh, a lot closer of a connection I, I always think of Cartagia two. first because he's saying hey you know I want to talk to the first emperor and so that is that connection there that mental bridge Okay, I, I would definitely would like to have seen uh, Rifa be like, you know, I didn't kill her. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. Uh, okay, he uh, moneybags continues. Garibaldi and Dodger? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Although, really, who else was going to come? Yeah. Edgar's? He could read the paper and talk about orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> come to think of it, that would have been better. <laughs> I don't care about Zoe either. I mean, it tells us a little more about Lockley, but again, who cares? How about giving us a scene where Lockley talks to a dead Earth Force uh, comrade who died when Sheridan attacked Earth? How about President Clark himself? Ooh, yeah. Or another good. higher up? Nope. We get her drug-addicted sister, which you said wasn't her sister. How about Sheridan? He died. <laughs> Technically true. Babylon 5 isn't the kind of show where I expect people to talk about drug addiction. Living in rat-infested hotels and, quote, doing things I'd rather forget, close quote, to afford drugs. It just doesn't feel right. I had forgotten about Lanier and Morden. An interesting choice. But Lanier has no prior relationship with Morden. Why not have Marcus appear? Way more interesting. Morden could have appeared to Londo, but I don't know that there's much more ground to be explored in that relationship. Oh, and I'm so glad that they chose to have one of the best actors of the show sleep in CNC so that he doesn't get a scene. <laughs> that would have been awful. Good. Just good awful. Point. Good point. 
Who would he have talked to, though? <laughs> I don't Nathan? know. Well, hang on. Was this because they didn't know who to conjure up for Jakar? A fair point, I suppose. Although he's lost many friends and family to the Centauri. We don't know uh, we don't know any of them by name, but if anyone would be afraid of being visited by a ghost, I think it would be Londo. Uh, I, I think that it is it could have been written really well to have Jakar yeah. have somebody else come back. Maybe Jaquan. That's what I said to so, say it was Jaquan. Or Rifa. Rifa to Jakar, you think? Yeah. Uh, they they might have had a few. Yeah, you know. Maybe. I'm not sure where you go with that. But. Um, and instead of having Zoe pass on a message from uh, to Sheridan from Kosh, why not have a scene between the two? Oh, because we had to see Rebo and Zudi. <laughs> right. They weren't that funny. Although Penn and Teller put in a good performance, there just wasn't much for them to do. And what was the scene where they and what was with the scene where they wanted to give up comedy? Stupid. And lastly, why didn't Delenn get a scene? How about a scene between her and the Inquisitor? in which they discuss the fallout from the Shadow War, or Dukat. Having said all that, an episode like this presents a very obvious problem. All the actors and actresses who play the dearly departed are, of course, not on the show anymore. So you're stuck with whoever you can get. But honestly, if that was the case here, I would rather that they have just skipped this episode. All in all, this could have been a good episode, but the pairings, or lack thereof, were poorly chosen. TV4, Sci-Fi 5. Um, thank you very much, Moneybags. Those were yeah. really, really good thoughts there. I uh, I, I like that especially, um, your uh, uh, notes about the, the people that come through. There, is, there was, I can't find the reference now, but there was a comment from Neil Gaiman somewhere uh, where he addressed the fact that Rebo and Zudi aren't funny that that that, that was a, that was intentional to show that what humor is would shift between now and 2261 oh so that's his scapegoat that he's saying <laughs> that's how he's explaining that he can't write humor so if that's the if that's the way you choose to view it yes <laughs> So because are, I think Gaiman really can't can write humor if you go look at his writing. Ring around the rosies and sweetest meatballs. Keep going. Humor changes. Well, humor changes every couple decades. You know what? What we find funny. Sure. The stuff that is going on in comedy routines right now. You take it back to the 1950s. It would be absolute vulgarity. Yes. Even back into the 80s. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm saying I, I think it's a, I think it's a fair point that humor does change, and we weren't supposed to find them funny. We were supposed to find them. That was kind of weird and awkward. <laughs> Which I think, well done, success, well done, success. By the way, the way, uh, the way it ended up being cast as Penn and Teller was they decided they wanted to get a real comedy routine and have them do this non-comedy, and you know, they were, so they were tossing names out, and somebody said, hey, you know. I know Penn and Teller are available. Do you want to call them? And they said, yeah, let's call them. And Penn and Teller said, yeah, we'd love to come down and do an episode of Album 1-5. Uh, 
So it's as much Pendulette being, uh, you know, a, a Babylon 5 geek, I think, as anything. Because obviously Teller couldn't have said yes. <laughs> well, it's got to be tough for the for the two of them to be on. You know, to think about a, a comedy duo like that. Yeah. You never get to be off. Poor Laurel and Hardy, man. Yeah. Uh, okay, over to Brainy Smurf. He says, Enter the Space Mexicans. <laughs> JMS accomplishes some great character development at the expense of good sci-fi. Yeah, not JMS's fault. Sorry. If this sci-fi rating were a dog, I would say, Bad sci-fi. That's a very bad sci-fi. You just can't take an ancient tradition of countless indigenous Earth cultures and hurl it into space as if we wouldn't realize. <laughs> you can't just take a religious concept of humankind and then transplant it to these broccoli aliens. Hey, did you know that these crazy aliens practice this crazy alien holiday called the Day of the Dead? Wow, what if humans practiced that? That would be crazy. <laughs> JMS, go zoot yourself, and then bring back Zog. <laughs> Sci-Fi Zero, TV wow. Six. You dudes are awesome-rific. Until next week, Brainy Smurf. Brandy Smurf, thanks very much uh, once again for everything that you provide to this. Yeah. That's really good uh, to have him write in. Pete, okay. Science fiction reading. Science fiction. I actually really enjoy the science fiction aspect of this. I think it is fairly original. Yeah, as Brandy Smurf points out, we're stealing it from, you know, the Mexican Day of the Dead sort of thing. Okay, whatever. It's still an interesting idea. I think they screwed up the pairings. Okay. I do. Okay. As we've talked about it here, I think there could have been much better ones to do. Um, and I would like to have seen them give a little bit of a closer nod to this being more mysticism. Heck, I, I wanted them to sell the entire Babylon 5 station and let the whole thing become Brakiri <laughs> space. Uh, more than just, you know, a single section That would have worked better as a full-length movie than a single episode. I don't know that you could have gotten just... enough content for any one character. No, no, no. You still only cover a certain oh, bit. Oh, I see what you're saying. But you do it for the entire station, I so see. everyone on there has this weird, freaky experience. And everybody talking to Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I agree with you. I think it plays better with the people who were outside of it coming at the end of the episode saying... Wow, there's a dramatic change in the people who were in there. I wish I had been part of that. I don't care about the change, though. Oh, okay. I, I, I don't. Sorry, did you give a number? I hadn't, because we I hadn't finished talking about it. <laughs> um, so I give this a 7. Okay. Uh, I am going to cite Arthur C. Clarke. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I'm giving this a 9. Hmm. Uh... I'm going in between you guys. I'm going to give it an 8. Okay. Aaron stands between us. <laughs> Betwixt us. TV, Pete. I think that... All in all, this is middle of the road. I give it a 5. Out of all of the TV we had to watch this week, I think this one is the <laughs> this most... certainly was the most highlight this universal week. for general audiences. Uh, I just... I, you know... I hadn't thought of it in this way, but now that it's been pointed out by the listeners, I think the problem with this episode is the pairings. 
Yeah, I, I think that and and the missed opportunity, of course, of, of Jakar, which they point out themselves in the episode. You know, Gaiman himself said, "Has Jakar coming down saying, what was I thinking? Why wasn't I there?'" Um, but it's just it's not strong enough for me. I'm giving it a four. Okay, Aaron, uh, gonna give it a six. I enjoyed it, but you know, just a little bit more than the average. So the P five rating is eight point four four. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Homestarmy Presents Trek West 5. We hope that you've learned something, had some laughs, and we always invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com. Or you can tweet us at hashtag trekwest5, or call and leave us a voicemail at 801-788-4913. So, until next time, I am Joey. And I am Peter. And thanks for listening.